What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission? At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders, from ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities. CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia. Movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details. You're listening to Citizen Detective. Brought to you by Abjack Entertainment. Be sure to check out some of the other great true crime podcasts from this network, including The Murder in My Family, Missing Persons, DNA ID, Scene of the Crime, Zodiac Speaking, Beyond Bizarre True Crime, and Campus Killings. All of these podcasts are available for you to binge on right now, wherever you listen to podcasts. Subscribe where you're listening to this podcast so you don't miss an episode. Citizen Detective is recorded live alongside real-life citizen detectives. Welcome to a brand new episode of Citizen Detective. I'm one of your hosts, Mike Morford. My friends call me Morph. I host or co-host several true crime podcasts, including Criminology, The Murder of My Family, Missing Persons, and Zodiac Speaking. Uh, And speaking of Zodiac, we are going to be continuing our discussion of that big case tonight with some fascinating clues and details. Uh, And if anyone out there has a voicemail they want to leave about the show or about this case in particular, you can go to speakpipe.com slash citizen detective. We may play your speak pipe message on the air. So with that, I'm going to turn you over to Alex. Thanks, Morph. I'm Alex Ralph, researcher and writer for Citizen Detective and the doc show Murder Was the Case. I'm a law grad with about 15 years experience working in criminal law. I've worked both prosecution and defense on several homicides and other violent crimes. I also want to let everyone know where you can find us. We record live on YouTube, twitch.tv slash citizen detective, twitter.com slash citizen pod, and facebook.com slash citizen detective podcast. Lee? Or doc, Dr. Murder. I am the former vice president of the American Investigative Society of Cold Cases and the head of behavioral. I'm the author of seven books. Here are some of them. Rampage, Canadian Mass Murder and Spree Killing, Behind the Horror, which is about the true stories behind horror movies, including true crime stuff. Conspiracies Uncovered, my latest. And I've got another one over there, which I forgot to bring, Cold North Killers. I also have some textbooks on necrophilia and uh, on homicide. I want to encourage you guys to go to patreon.com slash citizen detective and join 
the DDA. What's the DDA? It's the Digital Detective Agency. It's growing. And with that, you, you kind of, you become a part of the team and you support us. And uh, if, you, if you give enough at some point in time, you can meet us and hang out with us. But also, and, and most eminently important, we do an after-hours session called the scrum at the end of all this where we have a, a little bit more of an informal conversation and so you get to go to that every time too so please think about joining the dda and also we're uh, we're going to give an example more for us talking about SpeakPipe and some of the messages we got uh we've got some messages from uh relating to earlier episodes and we'd like to start off by actually playing some of those hi i'm sunny aldrich and i'm a new patreon um I'm going to put a more detailed explanation of this on the Facebook group because um, I only have a short time to record this, but I'm calling about the Mary Morris murders as I'm working my way back through your older episodes. So I was a cell phone company branch manager in 2000, and um, the bill that is being shown on Unsolved Mysteries is being interpreted incorrectly. So the first column is the date. The second column is the time of the call. Uh, the next column is the geographical information, like what city. And that was only provided on outbound calls. So you only got the, 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 the number and where the call was coming from on your bill if you paid for call records. However, the cell phone company had that end-to-end -end information in their switch. So the police department we didn't give that information out to customers who weren't paying for that unless it was um, via a police subpoena. Um, so then the next column shows like the number and rather than displaying a number since she wasn't paying for that, it simply says inbound. The I stands for inbound, not incomplete. Any calls that were not complete um, would not have even shown on the bills. It, was, it wouldn't show any attempts. Um, you could see that on the switch end, but you could no, would not see that on a customer bill. And so I'm still getting further through the, I think I'm on the scrum part of the, um, the Mary uh, Morris murders. And uh, you guys are discussing the fact that uh, she was shot with her own gun. And that's actually one of the reasons that my uh, state trooper father discouraged me from carrying a pistol around or keeping a pistol around uh, because he said that most people, number one, aren't proficient enough with one to have it be accurate um, or helpful in times of um, stress, but also that you, especially as a woman, have a much higher likelihood of having the gun taken off of you and used against you. I mean, police officers get their guns taken off of them and used against them by um, attackers all the time. So if Mary was freaked out because this creepy guy had been following her around as she had just told her friend, um, she pulls her gun out and keeps it within easy reach because she's nervous. She clearly had some warning that there was an attack coming because um, she called 911. And so I would assume she pulled that gun out to try to defend herself and it was taken away from her and used on her. That would be the most logical explanation. So that's the kind of call we're looking for. That's a good one. Um, it gives us fresh ways to think about the cases. And we're just re really heartened when we hear that stuff. We're going to go forward with Zodiac today. But I think maybe there's uh, sometime in the future we can 
revisit Mary Morris, even if it's for a little bit and in that light and look at that, because I don't know what you think, Alex and Morph, but uh, I, I think that there was some really great insights in that stuff we didn't think of. I, I love agree. when we get experts that are, work in certain fields and they hear us and they say, hmm, I have something I can add to that. And then they mm -hmm. take the time to reach out to us. I, I really think that's cool. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you, Sonny. Absolutely. So once again, if you want to leave a message, this is what we want the show to be more. Like it's, it's, it's just better to hear that kind of stuff. So go to speakpipe.com slash citizen detective and leave us some messages. So with that, are we going to look at the map first and then yeah, we'll go, the episode? We're going, going, going back to Cali, Cali, Cali uh, for the Zodiac Killer. Uh, again, this is our third time in California on the show. And uh, what cases are we going to be looking at tonight from the Zodiac? These are going to be uh, the ones following Blue Rock Springs. So we'll pick up where we left off in the last episode. After the shooting at Blue Rock Springs, the Zodiac failed to follow through on his threat of a Friday night killing spree. And the people of the Bay Area thought that the terror was over, but they were gravely mistaken. In the fall of 1969, the Zodiac killed another couple on the shore of Lake Berryessa. Or should I say he attacked another couple on the shore of Lake Berryessa, Napa County. Following the attack came more cryptic communications from the killer. Two weeks later, the Zodiac claimed his final official victim in the heart of San Francisco's theater district. His target was a lone adult male, and the crime took place in a populous San Francisco neighborhood. Two days after the murder, the Zodiac mailed a letter to the San Francisco Chronicle boasting about committing the crime, and this time the letter included a grisly piece of evidence from the crime scene that only the killer could have. So Cloyd Steiger and Drew Gray are back to share their insights on the last two official Zodiac cases. And Susanna Ryan is working hard on a big case right now. She may join us, hopefully, if she can uh, get in. And with that geographic profiler, Douglas McGregor is back with his expert analysis of the crime scene locations. And again, we've condensed tonight's cases into manageable snapshots uh, that do not include many of the facts necessary in telling the complete story. So we encourage you to go visit ZodiacKiller.com, ZodiacCiphers.com, ZodiacKillerFacts.com, and my site, ZodiacKiller.net. For a limited time, I'm going to be shutting that down, putting on a hiatus. So if you want to check it out, run over there real quick. Um, but with that, let's get straight to the attack at Lake Berryessa. Lake Berryessa is located in Napa County, California. Berryessa is a manufactured lake made up of twisting shorelines and inlets. The lake is over 25 miles long and three miles wide. Between 6.30 and 6.55 p.m. on Saturday, September 27, 1969, Ronald Fong was fishing on the water with his son when he heard the cries of a man and woman on the shore of a peninsula. He brought the boat closer and saw a white male and white female lying bloody on the lakeside. Fong did not approach the couple, but went to the Rancho Monticello Resort, three miles away, to get them some help. Park Ranger Dennis Land found the male victim about 300 yards from the scene of the attack, lying on the side of the road. The man told the ranger that his girlfriend was still on the peninsula, and Land went to her aid. Sergeant William White arrived by boat with the owners of the Monticello. They wrapped both victims in blankets and waited for an ambulance from Queen of the Valley Hospital one hour away. 
The victims were taken to the Queen of the Valley, where the girl spent the rest of the night in surgery. Investigation of the scene revealed little evidence. However, deputies found several boot impressions. The police identified the prints as belonging to a pair of men-sized 10.5 wingwalker boots. The boots were military issue and designed for walking on the wings of airplanes. The boots made deep impressions indicating that a killer was over 200 pounds. And the tracks led in two directions, to and from Brian, the male victim's Carmen Gia, on Knoxville Road, a quarter mile from the attack site. At approximately 8 p.m., investigators followed the boot prints to the car, where they found an ominous message from the killer. On the passenger side door of the Carmen Gia in black marker, the killer wrote Vallejo, 12-2068-7469, September 27, 1969, 6.30 by knife. Above the message was the same symbol used as a signature in the August 4th letter to the press on, after the attack on Mike Majot and Darlene Farron. Police lifted multiple fingerprints from the Carmen Gia, and the prints didn't match any recovered from, from prior or future crime scenes or letters. At 7.40 p.m., Napa County Sheriff's Deputy David Slate answered a disturbing call. The caller was male, and in a monotone voice, he said, I want to report a murder. No, a double murder. They are two miles north of park headquarters. They were in a white Volkswagen Carmen Ghia. I'm the one that did it. Deputy Slate heard a clatter as the caller dropped the phone, leaving the line open. With the phone off the hook, Slate could hear traffic and other noises in the background. Police traced the call to a payphone located at the Napa Car Wash in downtown Napa, 27 miles from the crime scene. Deputy Harold Snook processed the phone booth for evidence. He found the receiver on the shelf beneath the phone's base. Snook lifted a palm print from the receiver, but the print was too wet, and police were unable to match it with any retrieved from the Carmen Ghia. Victims were 22-year-old Cecilia Ann Shepard and 20-year-old Brian Hartnell. Shepard was a former student at Pacific Union College at Angwin in Napa County, California. Cecilia met Brian during her first semester, and the two became close. They dated previously, but they were only friends at the time of the murder, and Brian was a student at PUC studying pre-law. Brian and Cecilia met at PUC early in the morning of September 27th. They attended church services, had lunch in the school cafeteria, and spent the afternoon together. They planned on driving to San Francisco, but the hour was growing late, too late for a trip to the city. Brian suggested they drive to Lake Berryessa instead. The friends arrived at the lake around 4 o'clock p.m. and Brian parked his 1956 blacktop Carmen Ghia on Knoxville Road. There were no other cars parked nearby. They walked one quarter of a mile to the lake and settled on a blanket near the shore. Three large oak trees sat atop a small slope between Knoxville Road and the shoreline. They enjoyed the peaceful lakeside for about an hour before their time together was horrifically interrupted. Brian was on his back facing the water. Cecilia lay with her head on Brian's chest as she faced the trees in the opposite direction. She noticed a man wearing eyeglasses standing behind one of the oak trees. According to Cecilia, the man was watching them. She alerted Brian to the looming stranger, but Brian brushed it off. Cecilia watched as the man put something over his face. Next, the man stepped out from behind the tree and walked slowly yet purposely in their direction. As he approached, Cecilia realized the man was wearing an executioner's hood that hung down to his wa waist like a bib or tunic. 
The hood was square with four corners on the top and bottom. On the chest was a white, approximately three-inch square cross placed across a white circle. The ends of the cross extended past the perimeter of the circle, like the crosshairs of a gun. The hood was neatly constructed as if professionally sewn, and there were slits in the hood for the man's eyes, and he wore a pair of clip-on sunglasses. On the left side of the man's belt was a sheath holding a long bayonet-style knife. On the right side was a plain black empty holster with the flap open. Lengths of white clothesline dangled from under the man's jacket. As the hooded figure approached, Cecilia saw a handgun pointed directly at them. The man spoke to Brian and Cecilia, telling him he was an escaped convict from Deer Lodge Prison in Montana, where he had killed a guard. He advised that he was driving a stolen car. Finally, the man told them that he wanted their money and car keys so he could drive to Mexico. Brian offered his car keys and less than a dollar in change that he had. The stranger didn't take either, but ordered Cecilia and Brian to lay face down on the ground. He instructed Cecilia to tie Brian's hands and feet behind him with the pre-cut lengths of clothesline. She complied, but kept the knots loose. After she finished, the man tied her hands and legs behind her. Brian told police that the assailant, the assailant was shaking as he tied Cecilia and, and told the couple he was getting nervous. When she was secured, he went back and tightened Brian's ligatures. Under the impression that they were victims of a simple robbery, Brian made small talk with the assailant, brazenly asking if the gun was really loaded. The man ejected the magazine and showed Brian a full clip. Police reports state that the man returned the gun to its holster and spoke to them once more, his voice changing. He said, I'm going to have to stab you people. Next, the man reached into the holster, pulled the knife out, and began stabbing Brian in the back over and over again. Brian finally played dead to escape further assault. When the hooded man finished with Brian, he turned his attention to Cecilia, who was screaming and trying to maneuver out of reach. He stabbed her in the back, and as she was writhing in pain and terror, plunged the knife into her chest, side, and abdomen. When the attack was over, the hooded man stood up, casually walked back up the peninsula, and disappeared. Brian and Cecilia initially survived the attack. Brian worked slowly and painstakingly to undo Cecilia's blood-soaked ligatures with his teeth, but she was too weak to untie his. Brian saw a man in a boat and tried to attract his attention. The boat sped off, leaving Brian to believe the boater had abandoned them. Unbeknownst to Brian, help was on its way because it was Ronald Fong, the man who reported the incident to the park headquarters from the Rancho Monticello Resort. Eventually, Cecilia gathered the strength to loosen one of Brian's knots. This allowed him to free himself. He attempted to walk and search for help. In small, slow bursts, Brian traveled five to ten feet at a time, stopping to gain strength and then pressing forward again. He made it halfway to Knoxville Road when he saw headlights ahead. The lights were for par from park ranger Dennis Land's vehicle. What if you could have a career? where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission. At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders, from ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities. CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers.
Ryan survived the attack, but Cecilia died 48 hours later. Sources vary on the number of stab wounds inflicted on Brian Hartnell. According to ZodiacCiphers.com and ZodiacKiller.com, the killer stabbed him six times in the back, but other reports assert there were eight knife wounds. According to Brian, the blade fell on either side of his heart and came within an inch of killing him. Cecilia Shepard was stabbed ten times, according to her autopsy report, which you can read in its entirety at ZodiacKillerFacts.com. The coroner concluded that the weapon used was a 9 to 11 inch long knife, one inch in width, possibly sharpened on both sides. He believed the knife to be of heavy and sturdy fabrication, similar to a bayonet. Cecilia gave police details about the attack and the hooded assailant before her death. Before her death, excuse me. And Brian provided the blow-by-blow description of the assault that we discussed previously. Additionally, Brian gave a general description of the man's physical characteristics. The killer had a stocky build, and underneath the hood, Brian was able to see hair that was dark brown and appeared greasy, as did the man's forehead. Though stocky, Brian told police the man was not flabby, but solid and well-muscled. He estimated the attacker to be between 5'10 and 6'2", weighing between 225 and 250 pounds. The attacker had a uniquely cadenced voice, monotone, with a slow and measured drawl. Brian estimated his age at between 20 and 30 years old. Brian described the knife as a double-edged bayonet or bread knife, about one foot long to a half and one inch, half inch wide, having a wood handle with two brass rivets. White cotton surgical tape, approximately one inch wide, was wrapped around the handle. The knife was secured in a wood sheath attached to the man's belt. The gun, according to Brian, looked like a 45 caliber pistol. Although the victims were the only witnesses to the assault itself, two sightings of a man with a similar description occurred earlier that day and just after the stabbing. At approximately 3.30 p.m., three young women from PUC visited Lake Berryessa for a bit of sunbathing. They parked their car two miles north of the Sugarloaf Park A&W Root Beer Stand, located at 5100 Knoxville Road. As they parked, a lone man driving a silver or light blue 1966 Chevy two-door sedan with California plates pulled up beside their car, then backed up until his rear bumper was almost touching theirs. He sat in his car, looking down as if he were reading. The bathers headed to the lakeside. About 30 to 40 minutes after they settled near the lake, they noticed the same man watching them from a hillside 40 to 50 feet away. He was wearing dark pants and a black short sleeve sweater or sweatshirt that was bunched up around the front. Hanging from the back of the man's waistband was what the girls thought was a white belt or t-shirt. The man smoked cigarette after cigarette as he watched the girls. The women described the man as between 28 and 40 years old, 200 to 225 pounds, and approximately six feet tall. His hair was black and neatly styled, parted on the side. He had round eyes and thin lips. They described him as good-looking, with a muscular, stocky build. The women stayed at Lake Berryessa until approximately 4.45 or 5 o'clock p.m. As they left, they noticed that the man's car was no longer parked near theirs. Police never determined whether the man seen by the sunbathers was the same man who attacked Brian Hartnell and Cecilia Shepard. If it indeed was the Zodiac, it's likely that he was at Lake Berryessa for some time 
prior to the attack, trolling for the perfect victims. For reasons unknown, he decided against the sunbathers as his next targets. The sunbather story and a police sketch based on their description of the man was published in several Bay Area newspapers, but the man never came forward to identify himself. Ingram prints were found in the area where the sunbathers saw the unidentified man. Apparently, the prints were not preserved by law enforcement and thus never compared to those found at the crime scene. The sunbathers were not the only ones to see a strange man lurking around the lake that day. At around 6.30 p.m., Dr. Clifton Rayfield, a dentist, and his son David observed a man at a location approximately eight-tenths of a mile from Hartnell's Carmen Gia. According to police reports, the Rayfields didn't notice a vehicle parked in the area. They did, however, see the man from approximately 100 yards away. The dentist car was parked just north of the park headquarters. The Rayfields were headed toward the beach when David noticed a white adult male walking around the area. David and the doctor described the man as five foot ten with a heavy build. The man was wearing dark pants, a dark blue windbreaker, and a dark long sleeve shirt with red on it. The man carried nothing with him. He eventually noticed the Rayfields and left quickly, possibly when he saw David carrying a twenty-two rifle that he had with him. The man walked up the hill heading south with his hands in his jacket pockets. The sighting by the Rayfields was at almost the same location where the sunbathers reported seeing the man earlier in the afternoon. The location was also two miles north of Sugarloaf Park, A&W. Police found tire tracks behind the dentist's car and concluded that the tracks were left by the stocky stranger. Attempts to reconstruct the events before and after the attack led police to theorize that the man drove away from the Rayfield's vehicle, traveled four-fifths of a mile south until he came upon the Carmen Ghia then walked 200 yards down to the shoreline where he began his murderous assault on Brian and Cecilia. No available reports indicate the police photographed or otherwise preserved the tracks for comparison, and authorities remain uncertain whether the either of the sightings were related to the attack on Brian and Cecilia. After the attacks at Lake Berryessa, it was clear the Bay Area was being terrorized by a homicidal specter, an unknown monster who stalked couples until he found the perfect victims. Two weeks later, everything changed. In the late evening of October 11, 1969, taxi driver Paul Stein was found shot to death in his cab in the upscale neighborhood of Presidio Heights. Two days later, the killer sent a package to the San Francisco Chronicle. It contained another letter and a particularly gruesome artifact as proof that it was indeed the Zodiac and his reign of terror was not over. Presidio Heights is an affluent San Francisco neighborhood decorated with ornate homes and immaculate streets. It is located just south of the Presidio, a former elite military school that now serves as a park. At approximately 9.15 p.m. on Saturday, October 11, 1969, three teenagers looked out of the upstairs window of their home and saw a 1968 Ford Galaxy 500 yellow cab parked across the street. The taxi was parked about 50 feet from the window in front of 3898 Washington Street on the corner of Washington and Cherry. The teens observed a man in the front passenger seat of the cab holding another man's head in his lap. The first man struggled with the second as if searching him. It appeared to the witnesses that the first man was assaulting, perhaps robbing the other. Next, the assailant leaned over his victim and wiped down the inside of the taxi with a cloth. He eventually opened the front passenger door and exited the cab. 
Once out of the vehicle, the man wiped down the driver's side door, paying particular attention to the door handle, the mirror, and the left passenger side door. He moved to the driver's side, opened the door, and wiped down the dashboard. After, the man closed the door and walked calmly away. The kids watched as he turned a corner and headed north on Cherry toward the Presidio, one and a half blocks from the scene. The kids called police to report an assault and robbery, unaware that they witnessed the aftermath of a murder. The witnesses described the suspect as a white male adult with a stocky or heavy build, approximately 5'8 and 25 to 30 years old. He had reddish or blonde hair, styled in a crew cut, and wore glasses. The teenagers reported that he was wearing a dark navy or black parka, dark trousers, and dark shoes. Although the kids described the attacker as a white male, an APB went out telling police to be on the lookout for a black male adult. In the 2007 documentary, This is the Zodiac Speaking, retired officer Armin Palisetti stated that it is unknown who made the crucial mistake. But because of the error, SFPD lost her chance to capture the Zodiac Killer. The initial APB went out at approximately 9.58 p.m. Palisetti and Officer Frank Pita responded immediately to the call and were the first on the scene. Homicide Inspector Walt Cracky arrived soon, soon after. Their reports state that teens could still see the shooter approaching the intersection of Jackson and Cherry when Palisetti and Pita arrived. Kids tried bringing attention to the suspect, but the officers ignored them and ushered them back into the house. Photos of the crime scene show the victim's lying shows the victim lying in the front seat of the taxi, his upper body draped across the passenger seat, his head on the floorboard. A pool of blood is on the driver's side floorboard indicated that the position of his head was originally somewhere above the footwell. At 10:10 p.m., paramedics pronounced the man dead concluding that the gunshot killed him instantly. Pelissetti took a statement from the teenagers who again reported that the killer was a white male. Pelissetti realized the error and knowing time was of the essence, immediately called in a corrected description. Detective Cracky called for all local canine units and requested the San Francisco Fire Department spotlight vehicle to search the vicinity for the shooter. San Francisco's top homicide team was then brought in to continue the investigation. At 10.30 p.m., Inspector Dave Toskey phoned his partner, Bill Armstrong, to inform him they had been called to a homicide scene. Dave Toskey was the cream of the crop when it came to the city's elite squad of homicide detectives. According to Robert Graysmith, Toskey was San Francisco's own super cop. Inspector Armstrong was a tall, attractive 40-year-old who Graysmith described as resembling Paul Drake of Perry Mason fame. Order was Toski's fourth in as many days. Toski picked up Armstrong and the veteran detectives headed to the scene, arriving at Washington and Cherry at 11.10 p.m. Cursor examination of the cab revealed valuable clues. First, the meter was still running and registered a fare of $6.25. Additionally, the driver's keys and wallet were the only things missing. The killer did not take the driver's class ring or his watch. Toski found seven additional keys on the body a checkbook, some vehicle papers, and $4.12 in a change in his pocket. The inside of the cab was covered in blood, still fresh from the head wound. Police recovered a single copper 9mm bullet casing on the floorboard of the driver's seat. They also found a pair of size 7 men's black leather gloves in the front section. 
Prime Lab experts thoroughly examined the interior and exterior of the cab for trace evidence and late fingerprints. Recovered prints were compared to Stein and other passengers who rode in the cab. Hair and skin samples were also taken from the victim for comparison with any recovered from the taxi. Investigators found partial bloody fingerprints on the dividing panel between the driver's door and rear passenger door. They found more prints on the rear driver's side door on or above the door handle. The prints were from a right hand. Law enforcement withheld the existence and location of the prints from the press and public for investigative purposes. The victim was 29-year-old Paul Lee Stein. The young cab driver stood 5'9 and weighed 180 pounds. He lived with his wife near San Francisco's Panhandle in Golden State Park. Paul was a PhD candidate at San Francisco State. He drove for Yellow Cab at night and attended classes during the day. The relevant sequence of events leading up to the murder began at 8.45 p.m. when Paul Stein reported for work. He drove his first fare from Pier 64 to the San Francisco Airport Terminal. After dropping the passenger off, Stein drove to the theater district near Union Square, just in time for the shows to end and the audience members to pour out onto the streets in search of cabs. According to Richard Grinnell of ZodiacCiphers.com, between 9.30 and 9.45 p.m., Stein may have been parked outside of the St. Francis Hotel, located at 335 Powell Street, when he was dispatched to a fair at 500 Ninth Avenue on the western edge of San Francisco. Stein never showed up at the address, and the fair was reassigned to another driver. Many presume that Stein was on his way to the Ninth Avenue fair when he picked up another passenger, a decision that proved fatal. Police used the fare on the meter to backtrack Stein's movements, concluding that the killer likely entered Stein's cab in the theater district. Zodiac experts believe that Stein met his final passenger in one of two locations. One widely held belief is that Stein picked up the Zodiac at the corner of Mason and Geary Streets near Union Square. Another possibility is that the Zodiac entered the cab near the St. Francis Hotel, less than two blocks from the Mason and Geary intersection. The passenger gave Stein an address on Washington and Maple Streets in, in, in Presidio Heights. Stein logged the address, started the meter, and drove the man toward his destination. The cab slowed as it approached the corner of Washington and Cherry, one block past the requested drop-off location. The cab stopped in front of 3898 Washington Street. At some point between Cherry and Maple, the passenger pressed a loaded gun to Paul Stein's right cheek in front of his ear. The gunman pulled the trigger, firing a single round into the cabbie's head. There was little noise when the killer fired his weapon as the gun was pressed tightly enough against the victim's cheek to muffle the blast. John Lee performed Paul Stein's autopsy in the early morning hours of October 12th. The bullet entry wound caused the jagged star-shaped tear on the surface of Stein's head in front of his right ear. The coroner described the wound as large, ragged, and two by four centimeters in size. Gunpowder and soot was present on and around the entry wound. The skull was blackened by the heat of the gun's small but violent explosion. Approximately two centimeters of embedded gunpowder particulate called tattooing was on the scalp surrounding the jagged opening. The bullet bore a cone-shaped hole in Stein's skull as it entered, leaving shards of metal throughout his head and spiraled through tissue. The attributes of the bullet wound led 
the coroner to confirm that the shooter pressed the gun's muzzle into Stein's right cheek before firing. San Francisco's crime lab spent two days examining the yellow cab. They found type O RH negative blood inside the vehicle that belonged to Stein. The partial fingerprints on the dividing panel came, came from a right middle and third finger. Investigators theorized that the killer had held onto the panel to steady himself as he leaned in to wipe down the dashboard. On October 13th, two days after the murder, police obtained Stein's fingerprints from the Yellow Cab Company and compared them to those found in and on the cab. They did not match. Toski and Armstrong tried to acquire fingerprint samples from all customers who rode in the cab on the 11th and were only able to locate about a third of the passengers. Again, there was no match. On October 13th, two days after the murder, the teenagers worked with a police sketch artist to create a composite of the man based on their description. A wanted poster with a sketch was then distributed to SFPD and the rest of the city. Police circulated the poster throughout the San Francisco cab companies with a description of the killer's M.O. Stein was robbed at gunpoint five weeks before his murder, just, and just 12 days before, another yellow cab driver was robbed in a different part of San Francisco. Police warned the cab companies that the attack on Paul Stein was possibly part of a developing pattern of cabbie killings, and they should be on the lookout for a man resembling the one in the sketch. Police released an amended sketch on October 18, 1969, after they determined the suspect was older than the original estimate of 25 to 30. Based on a correction from one of the teenagers, they now believe the killer was 35 to 40 years old. Several witnesses reported a stocky man moving quickly through the Julius Kahn playground located at Pacific Avenue and Spruce Street on the southeastern wall of the Presidio. They watched as the man moved through the playground and vanished into the Presidio's thick foliage. According to Pellicetti, in This is the Zodiac speaking, he observed a man walking his dog on Maple Street and noted that the man was older than the age given in the APB and much thinner than described. Additionally, the man had no blood on his clothes. Pellicetti asked the dog walker if he saw anyone in the area. The man replied he had not, and Pellicetti let the man go on his way. Two patrol officers observed and may have made contact with a second man just blocks from the scene. At the time of the murder, Officer Donald Falk was on patrol with Officer Eric Zelms. The officers were near Washington Street, traveling north on Presidio Avenue, when they heard the call about the taxi driver and headed toward the scene. The officers drove west on Jackson Street toward the crime scene at approximately 10 p.m. While en route, they observed a stocky man lumbering along Jackson toward the Presidio. In an interdepartmental memorandum not submitted by Officer Falk until one month after the murder, Falk stated that the subject walked with a shuffling lope, slightly bent forward, head down. The subject wore a three-quarter length dark or navy blue jacket that was tight at the waist and around his wrist. Falk estimated the man to be 5'10", 35 to 45 years of age, barrel-chested with a heavy, bowl, heavy build, weighing between 180 to 200 pounds. The man had light-colored, possibly graying hair. Falk later referred to the lumbering gait as a semi-limp. He wore rust-colored pleated trousers and tan three-quarter length or low-cut engineering boots. His hair was styled on a crew cut, and he was wearing glasses. 
On the lookout for a black male, the officers dismissed the man as a suspect. In Falk's version, he and Zelms never approached the man. And this is the Zodiac speaking. Falk, Falk states that he and Zelms were traveling between 35 and 40 miles per hour when they saw the suspect and slowed down as they approached him. When they saw that he was white, they sped off and continued down the street. In the documentary, Falk's reason for passing the man over as a suspect was reflective of the thinking of the time. He said, seeing that it was a white male in an affluent neighborhood walking along the street, we didn't think it was the suspect, so we proceeded to the next block, which was Jackson and Cherry. According to Falk, he and Zelms observed the man walk up the steps to one of the homes but never saw him enter. Falk admits that he did not include this fact in the November report. His logic was that he didn't believe the killer lived in the neighborhood. Assuming it was irrelevant, Falcon omitted the observation from the report. According to author Robert Graysmith, Falcon Zelms held the man from the patrol car and asked if he had seen anything unusual in the area. The man replied that he had seen a man waving a gun running east on Washington. The patrol officers continued east in pursuit of the gunman. The details of this exchange likely came from the bus bomb letter sent on November 9, 1969, in which the Zodiac described being stopped by two officers and sending them on a wild goose chase. Two cops pulled a goof about three men after I left the cab. I was walking down the hill to the park when this cop pulled up and one of them called me over and asked if I saw anyone acting suspicious or strange in the last five to ten minutes, and I said yes. There was this man who was running by, waving a gun, and the cops peeled rubber and went around the corner as I directed them, and I disappeared into the park. After the sighting, Falcon Zelms were driving toward Argello Boulevard when they heard the call with a revised description. Uttering an expletive, Falk realized that he likely encountered the killer and let him walk away. According to Palisetti, Falk said nothing when they learned of the revised description and didn't report the sighting until a month later. At 10.30 a.m. on October Tuesday, October 14th, the San Francisco Chronicle received a letter addressed with a blue felt-tipped pen. The envelope was addressed. SF Chronicle, San Fran Caliph. Please rush to editor. Please rush to editor. The letter was postmarked on October 13th, the day before, from San Francisco. In place of a return address was the circle and crosshair symbol. Carol Fisher, letters editor for the Chronicle, carefully opened the envelope and removed a folded letter. As she opened the letter, a torn piece of gray and white fabric fell out. The letter's text, also written in blue felt tip, read, This is the Zodiac speaking. I am the murderer of the taxi driver over by Washington Street and Maple Street last night. To prove this, here is a bloodstained piece of his shirt. I am the same man who did in the people in the North Bay area. The SF police could have caught me last night if they had searched the park properly, instead of holding road races with their motorcycles seeing who could make the most noise. The car drivers should have just parked their cars and sat there quietly waiting for me to come out of cover. School children make nice targets. I think I shall wipe out a school bus some morning, just shoot out the front tire and then pick off the kitties as they come bouncing out. The letter ended with a signature crosshair symbol. Zodiac's statements mocking police were obviously intended to show that he remained in the area during the search, enjoying a sinister game of hide-and-seek. 
The letter and bloody fabric were turned over to inspectors Toski and Armstrong. The coroner confirmed that the section of fabric had indeed come from the left lower part of Paulstein's shirt. Detective Toski no longer believed that the killing was a run-of-the-mill cab robbery. He understood that the killing of Paul Stein was part of a much bigger, more sinister series of murders taking place around the Bay Area. Stein was a victim of the man calling himself the Zodiac, and he was now preying on the citizens of San Francisco. The murder of Paul Stein is considered the fifth and final confirmed Zodiac murder. Zodiac experts, however, have spent the last half century trying to connect other California murders, like the killing of Sherry Jo Bates, to the man who terrorized the San Francisco Bay Area during the 1960s and early 1970s. Communications from the Zodiac, or imposters claiming to be the Zodiac, officially continued until May of 1978. Some researchers claim the misses continued into the 80s. Several suspects have been offered up since his reign of terror began, but the true identity of the Zodiac remains unknown. With the advancements of DNA technologies, one day soon the case of the Zodiac killer could be solved. Until then, we will continue to pursue the truth and behind the most notorious serial killer in California history. Now let's go over to Lee to get his insights into the Lake Berryessa attacks and the murder of Paul Stein in Presidio Heights. I talked a bit about this last episode. I'm going to continue here with uh, my idea of the of the Zodiac and how his motives evolved over this series. We spoke about how the first two murders in the Vallejo area, I, I should say first two instances because there was three murders, were really uh, targeting couples and they were at lover's lanes. Now, some of you might think, okay, but how do we know he just wasn't targeting the lover's lanes and he would have shot people there even if they weren't couples? And that's a good point. But now we can see when he moves to Lake Berryessa, it's completely different. It's, it's a different um, geographical location. It's daytime. He's, he seems to be potentially wandering around looking at different people. But once again, he settles on couples. When I talked about those first two incidents earlier, uh, we, we said it was like a revenge thing, just to keep it short. Uh, you know, uh, wanting to have what they had, being young and in love, maybe like an incel type motive, jealousy. I want to obliterate it because it angers me. But when we get to this, I, I think we start to see the motive really evolving more. After the Blue Rock Springs incident, where he sent the letter, we could see the beginnings of this new motive. But with, uh, with Lake Berryessa, now he's wearing a costume and he's putting symbols on the side of the car. He's making a phone call. So he's upping this. He's becoming much more visible and it seems to be taking over. So what my argument is, is that Zodiac starts out wanting to get revenge on lovers. And then this transforms into what I call an expressive transformative motive. So that's uh, like really about establishing a new self. If you think of what this guy's like, he's not going to like himself. Uh, he's going to be a loner. We talked about this. He has a hard time socializing, probably doesn't get along well with the ladies. He just sees himself as an outsider. In fact, you know, he really indicates this in his letters, if, if you read between the lines or even just read straight into the words there. So um, so here it, it starts to move. He starts, attacks the couples, but now he becomes more brazen. It's more intimate. And when, and then after this, with Paul Stein, he moves away from couples in this fourth incident. And he just kills a cab driver in what is a completely act-focused, joyless 
murder. He, he, you, you know, he escalates uh, at Berryessa to stabbing, and it, it seems like he's getting more intimate. He's getting more confident, but he moves away from it. He also does it in San Francisco. So I think now we can almost consider him like a type of terrorist, not a political terrorist, but sub-political terrorist. This is a guy who wants to assert his new identity. I'm the Zodiac Killer. It's like being Magneto or being some supervillain. And the reason he targets San Francisco is because there's more people there, there's more press, there's more attention, and it scares people. And the, the murder, you can see the way it's committed. It's just not as big of a deal for him. So uh, I'm going to leave it more or less to that right now because we have plenty to discuss. But I just want you to consider that. This is why on uh, in that final incident with the fifth murder victim, he, he changes his victimology. He changes his way of killing quite a lot. He changes his location of killing. It's because the motive has changed. And it's now about convincing everyone else and himself. And when everyone else says you're the Zodiac Killer, you believe you're the Zodiac Killer. When you're the Zodiac Killer, you're powerful, you're important, you get attention, and you're not some basement-dwelling virgin who can't socialize with anyone, has basically nothing going for them in life, and is just full of bitterness. So if you want to look more into that, my dissertation was written particularly to uh, address these type of offenders. It was called I Kill Therefore I Am, The Expressive Transformative Process of Violence. You can get it online. Just type that into Google. It's lengthy, but it's detailed. and It goes through a lot of cases like this. I, um, I, compared, him, I compared him earlier to someone like David Berkowitz, and I still think that holds up. So let's bring on Alex and Morph to talk about this. I like your analysis. Uh, a lot of, I think, was spot on in, in my opinion. You you have the cases we talked about in the last episode sort of line up with the Berryessa one. It's couples in a uh, secluded area. You know, they're, they all fit the same pattern. Then you get to Paul Stein, and that's just completely different mm -hmm. lone male, just you know, there's, there's a shift there. And again, we can maybe debate on why that shift happened. Is it he's trying to get into a different area and do something that's going to get him in headlines mm -hmm. in this ritzy neighborhood in San Francisco, or is he just trying to throw police off his trail by getting a different kind of victim? Cause he realizes he's been targeting these, these couples. So definitely uh, an interesting thing to see that shift happen. Oh, like the little Taco Bell girl says, well, why not both, right? Um, he's come to San Francisco. Paul Stein doesn't really symbolize anything. Um, the couples do. It's young love, right? It's um, it, it's sex, frankly. Paul Stein is just a guy at, at work and um, barely even really talks about him. But it's San Francisco. So it's stopping about the, the victims and what they symbolize. And it's what San Francisco symbolizes. And so certainly... He's showing that I'm changing up the pattern, but changing up the pattern is going to make you talk about me more because now you're thinking, well, it could be any of us and it's in San Francisco. So everyone in San Francisco is going, what if he kills me now? So his target is really is the city. So this is why <laughs> I said he moves to be more of like a terrorist at this point. But we can't always think of uh, terrorism as something political. It's more of like a, a personal um, identity based motive of terrorism. I'm curious, um, why do you think he moved from a gun to a knife in Berryessa. Hmm. I think he wanted to probably try it. He was getting more confident. It's really, I imagine what he wanted to do all along. Um, mm -hmm. Okay. 
But then I what then the question is then why did he move away after that? Why didn't he just keep doing it? And I think it probably right. didn't satisfy him. I think he's a, really is a coward. And I'm not just saying that to be like moralistic because a lot of people say that about serial killers. Like he's a coward, like the person saying it's a, a hero. I'm not saying it for that reason. What I'm saying is he uh, he's shaking and he's he has exactly. complete control in that situation and he's really nervous. And mm -hmm. so I don't think he enjoys it. I think he's fantasized about doing this and then it doesn't go like he thinks. And he says, you know what? This is too risky. I'm not getting anything out of it. I'm going to go back to the gun now. And I mean, the right. next victim, he doesn't look them in the face or inter well, I guess he interacts with them to get in the cab. Yeah, I get but, there has to yeah. be some. Um, yeah. I would might go so far as to wonder if he was repulsed by been, the yeah. amount of gore and blood that it sounded like a fun thing to try. But in reality, that's part of what throws him off. Mm -hmm. Because it's it's not satisfying. In fact, it's repellent now what, what's interesting is what's with the costume right so alex you've read my dissertation and i talked yeah. about a, a seos do you remember what that stands for s-a-o-s -S. it's okay if you don't as long as no i don't it's symbolic true. affirmation of self mm -hmm. so we're saying well if he kills them well why is he wearing the costume and it's a very good question it's not just not to be seen because if you don't want to be seen you wear a hoodie Wearing an executioner costume with a symbol is, of anything, it's going to attract attention. Um, yes. Everyone's going to say, look, look at that supervillain running away if they do see you, right? But it's to symbolize to himself, like, I am embodying it now. I'm literally Zodiac, and they're going to see it, and they're going to react to Zodiac. And I even speculated, and it really doesn't matter. Morph hates this and disagrees with me, but that he might have thought, um, maybe I'll hurt the boy, but I, I won't kill him. I should say the man, Brian Hartnell, was a man at that point. Yeah. Maybe I'll hurt him, and then he can live to tell the tale. And where, hold on, where a clue of yeah. this is, he says, I want to report a murder. No, a no. double murder. Double. Yeah. It yeah. doesn't matter either way, so there's no point in debating it. But if Hartnell lives to tell the tale, which he does, then he can talk about the man in the costume, and then we get the sketch in the newspaper. So it could be about, it certainly is about wanting to embody this new identity himself and being a powerful uh, supervillain-like character, but it's also about um, promotion. And the more people respond to that and go, that's what the Zodiac killer is. He's not this guy who writes into the newspapers, but he's literally this guy in a costume. Then the more you feel that it's true too, because you're getting the feedback that's telling you it's true. And there's the transformative though, triangle. Yeah. yeah. And it's interesting at, during the attack, Alec Barrasa, he didn't say I'm Zodiac. They didn't say anything about him being Zodiac because they didn't really, you know, this, the Zodiac stuff was something that was happening Mm. off in Vallejo, which, you know, I don't think Cecilia and Brian were really even aware of uh, what was going on there. And so that's that's one interesting thing is he, if he really wanted to scare him, he could say, I'm the infamous Zodiac and here's my here's my costume. Yeah. Um, but, you know, he didn't say anything about Zodiac. They didn't ask him about Zodiac. They didn't recognize the hood that he was wearing as being the Zodiac symbol. And it really wasn't connected to the case until he left the message on the side of the door after the attack um so interesting if, if he wanted to yeah. scare them with this big i'm zodiac thing you'd think he would have said that to him when he attacked them but i i don't think that's necessarily who he wanted to scare except to be able to control them it's about the message that goes out to the rest of san francisco to the public at large the terror so 
he doesn't have to announce himself as Zodiac because the signs, the symbols he's left will connect those things in an even creepier way because he didn't just announce himself. If Zodiac's motivated to scare his victims, he's probably going to be motivated to scare all of them. And he goes about it in completely the wrong way because he pulls up on them really quick in the first two incidents and he just kind of blasts into their car. Mm -hmm. You know, right. if they're scared, they're scared for a second. It's really not the best way to go about it. And so if he, I don't think he is trying to scare them at like Berryessa. I think he's just trying to get control over them and kill them mm -hmm. so we can put more check marks on his list exactly. there. And, and, you know, vengeance against um, young lovers, particularly women, that's that has now moved to become the secondary motive, I think. But he certainly doesn't right. want to kill Paul Stein because Paul Stein doesn't even see it coming. So I would just say that he's never really tried to do that. He is trying to scare the people of San Francisco, but causing fear in them is not the end. The fear is a means to them talking about him more. This is um, it becomes all about talking about Zodiac because when everyone's talking about Zodiac and he is Zodiac, suddenly he's important and uh, not this pitiful creature. Right. It, it, it's interesting. He's walking towards them with a gun in his hand, with the executioner's hood on, saying, "Don't worry, everything's going to be okay." Yeah. <laughs> I'm, like showing with a Jason. Jason mask. Exactly. Yeah, oh, don't, nothing to worry about here. Um, I've always that's always been just a, a weird thing to think that hey uh, i'm gonna walk up with this because it looked just like an executioner's hood you know and with mm -hmm. this scrawled you know thing on there and you know you walk up to somebody and say don't worry it's, it, everything's gonna be okay it just seems kind of uh unbelievable that that uh, actually happened i wouldn't be surprised if if he just didn't really think much about that because we've talked about this person with abysmal social skills and that's reflected in the way right. he commits his murders right he's not like ted bundy where he he lures them in and he very well could have and he could have done more but he doesn't have the aptitude to do that so i wouldn't be you know it's really just blitz attacks or you know even including do what i say so mm -hmm. i wouldn't be surprised if he, he didn't even think it through like what if they you know what if they see this coming and realize that i'm obviously a maniac which i i guess they they picked the wrong type type of maniac I thought he was just a robber. Mm -hmm. It was his plan then ultimately worked if he wanted to yeah. gain their control. And that's, that's one of the things a lot of people theorize too, that he had the knife with him because the gun would have drawn too much attention. It was daylight. He wasn't used to attacking people in the, in the daylight. You know, he gets them under control with the gun. Then he puts mm -hmm. the gun away when they're tied up. Then he pulls out the knife to stab them. So it doesn't attract the attention. So, you know, that could have, that hood, could have served a few things, you know, given him some kind of gratification, scared his victims, covered him if somebody was to see him walking around. So maybe that hood, you know, served a few different purposes. Yeah, I, I absolutely it did. And that's a great point, Morph. And, you know, yeah. Occam's razor, that probably is why he switched to the night, because now it's daytime and there's people around and a gunshot's going to echo across that lake. So right. it, once again, that's probably I the primary reason. Um, and then he probably thinks maybe I'll get something out of it. And then, and then he doesn't, and he goes back to the gun when he gets to nighttime. I can think of another reason. Bloody stabbings get better press than gunshots. Yeah. You just have to do it one time, right? It's more horrifying. Yeah. Yeah. And that and is the most, it's, it's, it's a, I would say it is the most horrifying murder, right? Does anyone think any of the others is as far as just a creepy factor? Like that's the one that, um, if I were to have nightmares about Zodiac or I, I watch that Zodiac film, that's the one that gets exactly. me. Exactly. That's the yeah. one that gets me. Yep. And there's there were two young girls that were just stabbed 
to death right around that time making headlines. So, you know, it's, it's mm. possible that he, um, that's something that inspired him to sort of outdo uh, those two murders. I hope so we true. get to talk about those cases when we get to our panel discussion as well. Yeah. We'll see yeah, how, I... we'll see how we're doing for numbers. The more the people love Zodiac, the more Zodiac will do. Uh, for now, should we bring up um, Cloyd and Susanna to talk about some other aspects of the Yes, yeah, and Drew. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, Drew's come up too. Good time. Yes, he is. Hey, Cloyd. Hey, how you guys doing? doing Good. Great. What, are, what are your thoughts? Well, I, 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 I tend to think this guy is a loser, social... Basically, and this is his chance at glory. I have a tendency to think we always seem to overglorify these kind of guys. You know, they're not. Yeah, they're not the uh, superhero people. They're more of the lizard. You know, just a, a loser basically. And he's doing this stuff. I agree with your concept about why he used a knife instead of a gun. Uh, although, again, the knife is more intimate and personal and. Maybe it's just an experiment to see if he likes that. I don't know. But he's a, this guy is some loser. Probably has been in everything, and it's his chance at, uh, his, at redemption. That's what he's looking at. Okay, so holds up. And what do you think about the Paul Stein, the, the cab driver that was shot? Yeah, that's kind of an odd, odd duck thing. You know, obviously, it, you know, if I. It's obviously the same guy. He's sending a piece of his shirt, you know. Mm. So, I mean, but that's unless he's just like, well, let me show you. I can hit. I can. I can hit anywhere I want to, you know. Because by then he's getting his self uh, gradation of himself, and I, you know, I'm more powerful. I'm the all knowing, and mm-hmm. I'll show you. I can come into San Francisco and just kill at random, and everybody's at risk. And so maybe he's doing it, but it is not. Uh, choice is just you know a cab driver which is a low-hanging fruit really right yeah that's the easy that's a easy target to randomly shoot a cab driver they're they're always in danger yeah they're behind them they're not paying attention to you necessarily you just shoot them it's like what i unnecessary i realized too it's like when he gets into san francisco um there's more people there's And and so it's like he just realizes I got to hit and get out fast because it comes back once again to complete lack of social skills. Yeah. And I'm going to contradict myself. And, and that's just a thought. It's just a thought. I didn't stamp it. But maybe he's not as familiar with San Francisco as we think he is. Yeah. Maybe so not. he doesn't that's know. That's what place. I'd like to, yeah, to yeah. hear from you guys on is based on the location he chooses. Um, it seems and involved. you know where he supposedly escapes to all of these things what do you think um is his familiarity level with san francisco i bet you guys all have different opinions yeah on well, well mine's changing in real time to be honest yeah so exactly i've been to the city area before yeah. and i know what it's like up there you don't have to mm-hmm. be you don't have to be familiar with san francisco to find your way right. around but he's ballsy because he walks away and gets stopped by the police and basically you know, oh, that yeah. guy, there was a guy over there, you know. Of course, yeah, he enjoys that a lot. Yeah. So That's why does he... Ch- highly debatable how, that that actually happened, though. Right. Um, how 
familiar would he have to be to choose the Washington and Maple address? I don't think he has to And be. why would he he's, choose He's it? going in the area and he looks around. This is a good spot. Bang. You know, and then he walks out of the area trying to find his mm. way. I don't think he like lived anywhere near there. But he did choose it, Cloyd. He didn't tell yeah, he the cab driver, it. I want to go here. Yeah, yeah, yeah Based yeah. on yeah. some reason, you know, what that is, his, he lived there when he was a kid. Maybe, his boss or... lived there and he wanted to scare him by killing somebody in front of his house. We also don't or... know why he went down one block further to right. Washington and Cherry. So maybe he saw somebody and said, go one block further, saw somebody yeah. walking their dog, something like that. Um, Last minute well, change. And yeah. we've talked too about the possibility that this guy uh, might have been military. And I'm not really firm on it, but um, Presidio, oh, right? Shoes are interesting. Yeah. yeah. Presidio, but that was military a long time ago. It hasn't been military a while, but the wing, the wing walker shoes and then mm -hmm. the, uh, the type of knife was it a bayonet? It was a double edged knife, a bayonet style, yeah, bayonet bread knife style. Yeah, yeah. so I would have certainly started looking there, especially the wing walker shoes. You know, that's Air Force and that type of thing, and maintenance people. But the Presidio was still open in the 60s, wasn't it? Yeah, I don't know. I think it was still open when I was in there. It was in the 60s, probably when I was there in that neighborhood last, maybe or early 70s. So, Either way, it could just be familiarity with it, it from an earlier time in his life, right? Yeah. Also, I know this part. Like, this probably doesn't strike me as a guy who's going to know all the gay bars and, and the yeah. cool spots, right? Right. <laughs> yeah. um, Presidio Heights is also right. Okay. Thanks, Doug's in the, in the wings uh, saying it was open till 91. That's what okay. I thought. Yeah. Um, but Presidio Heights, you also have the illusion of safety and security. Mm. So it makes a great mm. target location. Again, for the nobody safe in San Francisco. The or also, also a good terrorist, like Lisa, terrorist. Yeah, thing. that's you're safe here. It's not the uh, the Castro district and stuff where this goes on all the time. <laughs> right. This is the rich area, and I, I'll strike anywhere I want. So. It's not Oakland. Yeah, it's not Oakland at all. Yeah, exactly. he has he has some kind of tie to San Francisco. We know that. Well, the Bay Area. Because he's he's yeah. mailing all the letters that were mailed, the bulk of them anyway, were mailed from San Francisco um, yeah. on weekdays. So and now he's there he on a Saturday Saturday night too. Francisco, yeah. So if I could living there, talk. working there, or something. I don't. I don't think uh, any of the Zodiac crime scenes uh, required much reconnaissance at all. I'm sure he'd been there. I'm sure he vaguely knew. Uh, where he was going to go. I think uh, uh, with San Francisco, I completely agree with uh, with uh, what Lee has said about why he targeted there. I think there's a number of reasons. Uh, I think he had San Francisco in mind from the beginning, which is why he included them with his in his uh, first letters. Um, and he may have chosen uh, Presidio Heights not only because it was wealthy, and uh, because he could go directly there with a cab driver, uh, thus proving that no one was safe. It wasn't just about kids on lover's lanes, at least not at that point. Uh, and I think part of the reason may have been that he wanted to be close to the bridge to make his escape, or at least let them know that that's probably where he was going to drive away after. Uh, but it was also close to the Presidio, so we could have gone in there 
Uh, he knew that they weren't going to go door to door looking for him, especially in a neighborhood like that. Certainly doesn't seem like they did that in Vallejo. Mm-hmm. Uh, but mostly it was it was to uh, to make a, a splash in the headlines and project uh, what I believe was uh, a very controlled uh, campaign in terms of yeah. uh, geography. Like whether he lived in the Vallejo area, we may never know. But that's where he did his, his first two attacks. And then he went in a completely different direction to Napa and then went in yet another completely different direction to San Francisco. And I don't know if we'll touch on it or, or not, but a few days later, he made a call in... Uh, sorry, help me out. Where did he think. make the call? Santa Rosa. Uh, which, Santa is another, which is yet another... Um, uh, direction. So while geographic profiling hadn't really been established for some time afterwards, I think a lot of it is sort of common sense. He knows that if he's attacking in all these uh, spaces uh, around the Bay Area, that they will have no idea where he may reside. Did somebody say geographic profiling? They did. Bring up Sounds Doug? like a cue to bring up geographic profiler yes. Douglas McGregor. Nice segue, Drew. <laughs> and uh, let's let's throw up Doug's maps. Doug, do your sweet thing. Hey, How's Doug. everyone doing? Good. Great. Good. Good. Nice to see everybody. Right. Good to see you. Yeah. Thanks for having me on. Uh, so I just had the time to do uh, to send the one map today. Uh, it's not very detailed. It's just kind of an an overview of uh, the larger convex hull, uh, basically the activity space for for Zodiac. Um, and I included four points there. So obviously uh, San Francisco in the bottom left there, um, Lake Berryessa, top right, uh, Mount Diablo, and then Santa Rosa up to the top left. Um, I'll try to explain it for those that are just listening here. So that convex hall encompasses all the, the four known attacks uh, for the Zodiac Killer. Uh, now, what it also encompasses the Santa Rosa, because there's the one communication from there, uh, which I think is important. Uh, there's some reason for him to be in Santa Rosa. Uh, Mount Diablo, because he, all, he uses that in his communications. Uh, the reason I stretch it to Mount Diablo as well, whether he actually uh, had any activity there or was that where he said he hid the bus or the bomb for the bus, the bomb, the bomb. Yeah. Yeah. The bomb, uh, by stretching it there, it also includes Oakland. Uh, and I think the Oakland athletic tickets are, uh, significant as well. And it includes those other, uh, built up urban areas in that, in that area as well. Hold on. Uh, did we talk yeah. about the Oakland athletic tickets? No, no, no. did not. Okay. Doug, can you fill us in on those? Yeah. I'm, well, maybe Morph can fill you in. I'll just comment after he gives the details. He probably knows better. Uh, I, got every, so it, I got everything off his podcast anyway. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, in 19... Was it 69 or 70, Drew? I can't remember. I think it was 69. Um, a, co- a couple in Vallejo uh, turned in a letter they had gotten, and it included some Oakland A's baseball tickets, um, and the letter the envelope or whatever said gift from Zodiac. Uh, 
Um, and you know, the police took that into evidence. They've never released that letter. I tried to get that letter released just to see what the writing looked like and stuff. Uh, they refused to release that letter, which to me tells me it's, it's probably legit. Um, cause if it's a hoax letter, they've released a bunch of ones that are questionable and that one they chose not to. Um, so I always interested in that one. You know, I, I've never gone here, but I just realized you've got two baseball teams you can choose from, right? You have the Oakland A's and the San Francisco Giants. And can we make some sort of, I'm one was Nash, National League, right? The Giants, mm-hmm. A's or American League. Is there something that we could infer about that? You know, there's like Yankees fans and Mets fans. Mm-hmm. What, what does anyone know enough? Cloyd does. About baseball, this, who would choose the Oakland A's when you can choose the Giants in the? Well, season? somebody lives in. Someone's an Oakland fan, you know, lives in the East Bay, or or yeah, lives in the East Bay but works in San Francisco, right? That's the thing. It's completely different fan base. With my theory, it would be he attacks in places and makes calls from places where he does not live. So, um, as thin a theory as it is. Perhaps he says Oakland instead of San Francisco because he wants people to think he's closer to Oakland. Yeah. The problem with the problem with playing that though, Drew, is then everything he does, we can say, well, it's the evil genius. So he wants us to, and so then every bit of evidence becomes, um, you can flip it and invert it, and then all ever, you know, all behavioral evidence kind of becomes useless. So we can't afford him that much. It is useless though, because he was writing in a character. Letters he didn't have to write, letters that didn't benefit him in a in they didn't benefit uh, in him. any way. Yes, they did. Well, he was like, propaganda. Well, his ego. His That's the reason yeah. we're talking about him right now. If he didn't yeah. write those goddamn letters, we wouldn't yeah. care. Yeah, but what yeah. reason is there to believe that he's he's uh, giving us hints? Well, he started in Vallejo, which is an area that would be an A's fan thing in that area on the East Bay, and worked in San Francisco. And usually the first ones are the most convenient for them, you know. And so, right. as I said, yeah. yeah. And and not to go down to the baseball rabbit hole too much, but since we're talking about baseball, there was another threat on someone named Ed Selmina, and he was a sports reporter, um, and he received a letter from someone claiming to be the Zodiac, uh, threatening him, and he ha- he not only was a sports reporter, but he managed a. a semi-pro baseball team um, that played on certain schedules and this threat against him told him not to go out of his house on those days when those games were or he'd die essentially Um, so I tried to get my hands on that letter and that one is is gone forever that's never going to be seen Um, so we don't know whether it was a real threat in the letter handwriting looks like Zodiacs or not but that was you know the baseball theme continued sort of there he, and he can stop killing after Paul Stein because it, it seems that he's not really that into killing. Like he, he says that he is, you know, I like killing because it's so much fun. But uh, and then he wants us to believe that he keeps doing it forever, which he may or, or may not do. I have a feeling he probably slows down a lot because at this point, like I said, the motive is swapped and it's, it's now all about just advertising. It's making us buy into the Zodiac brand and then he's just getting enough joy out of that, that he doesn't. Have to put and he almost got risk. caught. He almost got caught after he almost got caught. Yeah. yeah, it's also exactly. interesting to uh, speculate. On uh, November eighth, he sends uh, his cipher that took fifty years to solve, and then the next day he sent a lengthy letter. 
Now, in the greeting card that the uh, that the uh, cipher came in and the letter the following day, he talks about how he's going to disguise his killings from now on. He's no right. longer going to announce it. They're going to look like regular accidents, uh, things just like um, just like the Paul Stein murder. But in the cipher that they did not solve, uh, he actually uh, stated that he was retiring. He had, uh, I think the quote was, I have collected enough slaves for my afterlife. Uh, so it could very well be that he was truthful in the cipher, that he was getting away from, uh, from killing, uh, but he wasn't going to let them know that unless they solved the cipher. And until they did, he was just going to keep screwing around with them, uh, pretending that, uh, that he killed people that he didn't. Uh, this was the first letter where he did that, in fact. He has um, his first uh, kill tally, and he has it at seven, and uh, puts in... Uh, the word uh, August, as in, you know, the San Jose murders, which is an entirely different direction than he'd uh, killed before. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he had two victims in August, so there was probably the uh, Kathy Snoozy and Deborah Furlong vicious, vicious knife attacks uh, that happened uh, on August 3rd. And on August 6th, they got the front page which Zodiac never got, even though he was threatening, threatening to go on a kill rampage if he didn't get it. They didn't give it to him, but they gave it to this knife attack, which happened on uh, a nice little spot of, uh, of uh, grass. Kind of looks like uh, Lake Berryessa. And of course, there was also the Manson family murders that happened uh, a few days later, which involved writing at the scene uh, so I, I think there was probably a lot of things that inspired the uh, Lake Berryessa attack, which also happened on the date of a Jack the Ripper uh, letter. But yeah, but you were, you're getting into apophenia here. Like you can find something for every you day bet. in history. You know, uh, if, if, yeah. So I just want to point out too, and then we'll go back to Doug because I, I think he wants to finish up. We just get so carried away with this. But, um, it's seven, right? How many people do we know that he attacked? Not killed, but attacked. Seven. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. So maybe he's counting those or he's just screwing with us. He's, I'm, I'm, I'm not lying to you. There's seven. I didn't say they were all dead. Mm-hmm. Right. He did have August in there, though, associated with that list. Okay. Okay. Anyways. Doug, um, back to you. So Oakland, we have the... The shape so tell us oh i just noticed the are those highways that looks that's a zodiac symbol i'm joking <laughs> yeah right <laughs> big a big x um yeah those are just the the main routes that you'd travel from uh basically san fran through vallejo up to lake barrios and uh and then diablo across there to santa rosa and it's kind of interesting because i'd never really thought about it but i've probably been to lake barrios quite a few times i actually grew up uh well for three years in my when i was young in uh, davis california which is just 20 miles to the east of lake Berryessa. so i've probably been out there with my family several times um yeah so the the oakland athletic tickets i just thought was neat because uh oakland the the athletics didn't actually come to they weren't their team wasn't established in that area to 1968 so everybody in that area would have been a San Fran Giants fan. Um, 
the Oakland A's, they just can't, they, they got transferred from uh, Kansas city. So they were just recently established in that area. So I just feel, you know, if he was a, a, a long-term resident of that area, or if he was a baseball fan, he probably would have used the giants. Um, but for whatever reason he picked, uh, he picked the Oakland athletics. If again, if that communication was from him, right. Cause some of this stuff is obviously is not confirmed. Were the tickets cheaper? Yeah, maybe. Probably. Um, probably. Yeah. Um, but it just it just kind of also shows a familiarity with that area, with Oakland um, as well. So that's encompassed in that area. So that's just kind of the larger Convex Hall. Uh, honestly, I think, uh, in my opinion, I think the Convex Hall eventually will be quite a bit bigger. Um, I think he's got a lot more. He, there's a good chance he has more attacks out there than than uh than we know of or than are confirmed maybe law enforcement know who knows um the reason i say that is because he 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 claimed or he took ownership of all those attacks that that went cold that were not solved that had no witnesses you know and that 40 minute gap what i see when i see that 40 minute gap is you know he messed up at lake herman road uh he left a survivor so after Blue Rock Springs, there's a 40 minute gap. No, know, sorry, no survivors at Lake Herman. Then, um, did you mean Blue Rock Springs? Blue Rock Springs. Sorry. Okay. Yeah. So there's a 40 minute gap there. You know, he's waiting around. I'm thinking he's waiting around. He may have gone home to change, like people have mentioned. Uh, but he may be waiting around to see if there's any anybody noticed anything. Anybody saw him coming or going? Um, and after that and then he goes and he does his communication he makes the phone call right uh and i just you know he takes ownership of all these of all the known attacks um but he hasn't owned up to he hasn't singled uh he hasn't identified any other attacks he said he's done a lot of other attacks but he's never Mm -hmm. identified them so maybe he was worried about being noticed and those other attacks were being identified i don't know what do you think I th- I think look at what um, look at what Islamic terrorists did in the 21st century, right? Like um, ISIS. Um, you do some messed up stuff. You get everyone paying attention to you, and then you start claiming everything um, because if the point is terror, then or the main point is terror, you don't need to keep doing it. Um, so you, you know you you people you people are looking at you with this greater monster, and you don't have to put the work in. Sure, no, but like mean... like ISIS has lost some credibility doing that, for example, right? Because they've claimed credit, they've claimed no. that someone's doing it in their name, but they're really not. So, right, I think Zodiac lost credibility too, to be honest, because I think there's some stuff that he strongly hinted that he did, mm-hmm. which now we're thinking he didn't do. So, um, no, it doesn't mean it was a good plan, or I don't know. <laughs> yeah, it, 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 no. for sure. It, either one, I guess it could have gone mm-hmm. either way. Um, no. If he does have other murders, I'll point this yeah. out. This is important. The one thing that I've kind of, um, one thing that I've really emphasized is he doesn't have social skills. Uh, I don't even think he he's really competent in doing the attacks. And like, I think he gets scared and he, he wants them over pretty quickly. You can see that because they're all blitz. And, and the one that isn't, um, where he takes his time, he's, he's seen shaking. Mm-hmm. And he's really, so I think that if you look at his other murders, it's not going to be anything where anyone was abducted or um, they're going to be similar act focused blitz attacks. So if you have someone else shot in their car, could be Zodiac. 
if you have a woman who's raped and strangled at the side of the highway, I'm going to say no. Yeah, sure. Excellent point. And there, and there are cases too that we haven't discussed. Um, you know, the Kathleen Johns abduction, who I personally don't think was Zodiac, but that's a case where he supposedly attacked a woman, abducted her, and, and drove her around for a couple hours. It right. Definitely does not fit the known Zodiac mo. Um, she had so, some cred credibility issues, right? More of the Kathleen Johns thing when you look at it logistically. There, it there like... were some some things that some people didn't didn't think added up. But on the other hand, you know, her car, you know, again, for people out there listening that don't know about her attack, she was driving on the road at night with her young child in the car and a car came up behind her flashing its lights and he signaled her to pull over. He pulls, pulls her over. She's you know, what do you want? He's like, your tire's wobbling. I can tighten it for you. So he gets out. What he really does is loosens her lugs. She drives a couple feet and then the tire falls all the way off. So now she's stranded and he has to give her a ride to be her, you know, knight in shining armor. Well, supposedly, according to her, you know, he drove her around, basically abducted her. But her story was a little wishy-washy. But they did find her car uh, burned uh, afterwards. Um you know, so just uh, again, not she. She saw Zodiac's picture on a poster on the sketch and said, "That's him. That's the guy that abducted me." Um, but it, Zodiac was never known to kidnap anyone and drive around and spend time with them. He was in and out blitz style, like you mentioned. It's a detail which uh, which may explain something. Uh, apparently, uh, Howard Davis interviewed Kathleen Johns. And she told him that she didn't have keys for her car. Uh, it was an old car, and she had to, like, hotwire it, essentially, to get it uh, going. So perhaps that explains why it later caught on fire. I don't know. But, and also, it supposedly had moved when police found it. It, it was on fire. It was burned. So it was, But it was moved back to the spot where he had originally pulled her over. At, and exactly. she drove a little ways before the tire actually fell off. So according to her, whoever that she thinks that the the guy that abducted her went back to her car, moved it back to its original spot, and then set it on fire. Yeah, we each have to choose our own interpretation of that. I think. Yeah. That's why I like to be conservative with it. I mean, there's all these things that that could be, but we know the the original five are. So that when Morph and I have talked about that, I was like, that's where you got to focus your energies. It could be that the there canonical. are other ones. Yeah. Canonical. But you want to, it's like with Jack the Ripper, there's a canonical five in Jack the Ripper too. And you can make a case that he might've killed all these other people. And we can argue about it all day, but why not mainly stick to the five that you know he killed and not get off on a, a wild goose chase? What do you think, Chloe? Is, is that good practices? I agree a hundred percent. You went back and moved the car to the original spot. Why? What purpose is that? Yeah. That's what I was wondering. Do? Nothing. Why would you move the car back? If you're going to torture it, you're going to torture it where it is, right? It's Especially like, if you got to put the tire back on it and yeah, do yeah, all of that. that. First of all, That's people are lazy. People are lazy. They don't do that shit. Mm -hmm. But you know, the really, you're right. You have to focus on the ones you know for sure. And the rest is just noise. If it later you somehow link them to it, great. But you can't, you can't get, you have to stay focused. You can't go on a tangent. And look at these other cases that may or may not be involved. Yeah. There were so many bad guys doing so much bad shit yeah. around that era of California during oh, the yeah. late 60s. And, no and Zodiac would have liked to have blamed, been 
taking credit for all of them. Absolutely. Um, but, Absolutely. but he didn't commit all of them, so we know no, that. He did not. That's exactly right. Are we going to do some comments now? Let's yeah. do some comments. I bet we're going to have a lot, so we've got to stay on top of these. Alex, you want to read this? Yeah, so this is from a Facebook user. The possible evolution and motive also times out with the break between number one and number two incident, between the first and the second incident. Perhaps he left the area, and perhaps he did commit another homicide elsewhere, maybe got some publicity from it, and then was inspired to go back and resume his activity north of San Francisco and start the correspondence. What do you guys think? Great. So incident one is Lake Herman and then Blue Rock. So the the gap between December 1968 and July 4th, 1969, Mm -hmm. um, left the area, commit another side, maybe got some publicity from it, from the one he committed in between. That's how I'm interpreting that. That's how I read it as well. And there um, were, there were like in 1969, even here in Florida, I found just a few different cases of people randomly shot on lovers' lanes uh, in different states uh, during that time frame. They didn't send letters. There were no letters of someone saying I'm Zodiac. They were just random people shot on lovers' lanes. Um, so there are other crimes that are Zodiac-esque in, in yeah. different areas. But I will point out there was also Lover's Lane murders in the 40s in Texarkana, mm-hmm. which is a case that yeah. we should cover, where a guy wears a mask like the Zodiac. Uh, mm-hmm. And if the Zodiac, unless the Zodiac is really old, it's not the same person. Yeah. There's um, Lover's Lane murders in, in Italy, the monster of Florence. Mm-hmm. That's another great yeah. case. We should we should just make the Lover's Lane it's, murders, unsolved yeah, murders podcast. It's, yeah. It's a common place to find people that aren't paying attention. They're busy exactly. spending time with each other. It's usually dark out. It's the perfect cover to get an unsuspecting victim and do an attack mm-hmm. like this. Yeah. Plus, if if your theory is truly like this guy is an incel and he's out sort of looking for the people that he covets that mm-hmm. are spending time together, where's he going to look for him? And he's going to look for him on these lover lanes areas. Is it uh, is it ironic that? one of the main roads going through the Presidio military base is Lover's Lane. Oh, cool. <laughs> uh, interesting. Uh, it's kind of funny because I have a, uh, I wish I could have set it up beforehand, but I have a a map of 1969 San Francisco overlaid on Google Earth, and I also have a map of the Presidio uh, military base overlaid. Hmm. So it's just kind of neat to see where where he was uh, dropped off for the uh, uh, for the Stein murder. Um, and you kind of made comments about that before, but the, the three things that are right there are obviously the military, the army base. Mm -hmm. And then, uh, it's just less than one block from Presidio Terrace, which is the extremely high affluent, uh, area of Presidio Heights. There's only 36 units in there or something like that. Mm -hmm. And then there's a, there's a house for the aged right there. So that's, that's where he was dropped off there. So is it like uh, the equivalent of killing someone in the Upper East Side of Manhattan? Yeah. So I actually did a little background on Presidio. And when Presidio was being, the whole Presidio Heights area was being uh, built, it was only marketed to white people. So basically you're looking at the extremely affluent white district is what you're looking at. Right. As you said, Alex, it's not Oakland. It ain't Oakland. Right. Yeah. Yeah, those houses, the houses were... 
Stein's cab came to rest there were really expensive and well-to-do people that lived right there. So um, maybe he was just trying to shock them, you know. Probably. Is Susanna around? I believe she's I hope so. I hope so, because I think there's some real good DNA discussion here to be had. Drew says she's here, so let's bring her on. Yeah, I'm good with that. Uh, she actually, there she is. Yay. In her lab <laughs> coat and you're, everything. You're doing an oh, Alex. You're doing an Alex. We, we don't hear anything. She's got the mute on, but she's, <laughs> she's on scene. Yeah. On mute. Uh, she she's saying maybe? it's not working. Uh -oh. Uh -oh. oh, no. Try and, try oh. and come back in. Use American Sign Language and tell us what you think. Yeah, uh, mime the, the <laughs> DNA dance. process. She's going to use the, the uh, sign language, all right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Only one finger, not three. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I okay. hope she can get in because there's some really good oh, DNA yeah. potential stuff to talk about in these two cases. Let's, um, more comments. All right. Uh, a lot of these uh, we've sort of discuss but let's go through them anyway uh, that's um other knife murders in the bay area got front page coverage yeah. paul carpenter says that yeah like i like i said the yeah. snoozy and furlong murders which mm -hmm. went unclaimed or unsolved for about a year and a half mm -hmm. um they were uh right for the for the claiming for zodiac at the time mm -hmm. so paul here is arguing that uh that is a strong motivation potentially to switch to the knife. I, I'm good with that. Yeah, as, as, as was I. We're going to give Susanna another try here. Okay. How you doing, Susanna? Uh-oh. Have we achieved audio? Hey, can oh, you hear no. me now? Oh, I, yep. oh no. yes. There we go. No, still nothing? No, yes, yes, yes. 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 <laughs> Oh, you can? You can hear me? Yeah, we can hear, we can hear mm -hmm. you. Yes. Everybody else is disappearing. What's happening? Uh -oh. uh, While she works that out, we'll yeah. talk We'll talk a bit, and we'll see if her connection stabilizes. Okay. Yeah. Okay, let's throw another comment up. Hartnell, citizen detective from someone in the DDA, Digital Detective Agency, says Hartnell apparently started speaking with Cecilia as soon as their attacker was out of sight. So Zodiac may well have heard them and known they were not both dead. Yeah, I, that was actually me who made that uh, comment. <laughs> I, didn't mean to, I didn't mean to throw it out right now. <laughs> he looks like the Zodiac. He acts like the Zodiac. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, and, and oh. Paul mentions the Manson murders were making big news the month okay. before Berryessa. He was getting upstaged by a lot of different headlines, that's for sure. Yeah, yeah okay. Okay, I connected through my phone instead of the internet. Oh, there you there go. go. Okay, we're good. Be much better. Okay, all right, some, very good. Let's Fine. talk some yeah. DNA because there's a lot of potential okay. DNA with these two attacks that we didn't have in the first two attacks. Yeah, yeah, I would agree. So, I mean, the the problem, of course, is you know how was it um, how was it preserved? And yeah. uh, I mean, I I I'm fairly certain I've seen photos of this evidence being you know handled without without you know with the investigators without gloves on and by 
goodness knows who. So, you know, I think that that's one of the problems or one of the things that we need to be aware of. And of course, this is not, you know, to blame anyone. We didn't know, you know, people didn't know about DNA testing. It didn't exist at that time. So that's, you know, that's not to be expected. But um, yeah, I mean, I would definitely be interested in seeing or hearing what all they have. Uh, I'd be interested in that uh, latent prints on the cab. That's something that could potentially be tested now for DNA. So I don't know if it's been done or attempted. Um, but uh, oh, more if you're muted now. There we go. At Lake Berryessa, um, we know that he handled that clothesline uh, that he left them bound with. And as a matter of fact, I'm going to guess yeah. it's been seven, eight, nine, ten years ago. They tested that those bindings for touch DNA. Um, okay. But again, that was so long ago. I know that's a, a lifetime ago as far as DNA science goes. Um, I mm-hmm. Nothing was found at that time. But that doesn't mean that if they tr- you try it now, you tell mm-hmm. us, would there be something different that they might not have found before? Uh, yeah, I mean, it's possible. You know, I mean, I have worked on cases in the past where it's been, uh, you know, a ligature or something used to tie someone up where either no results or just a partial result was found. And we do MVAC collection and, you know, have been able to get usable results. I have something right now that I'm working on that's, you know, kind of the same scenario. Whether I get results or not, I don't know. But you know, it, it's it's definitely um, at least a possibility. So, you know, I think that we have to think about. I feel like we talk about MVAC all the time, but honestly, it's there. There have been so many um, improvements in DNA testing, like with the with the on the the far end of it, the downstream side of it. But MVAC is one of the few things that's been developed that's new for the the front end, the collecting of the DNA. So, you know, there's more sensitive kits and instrumentation and things like that. But that in combination with an improved collection method is is why, you know, we kind of keep going back to, okay, let's think about the MVAC. Um, And also, you know, with that type of sample, we, if we have a reference sample from the person that was tied up, um, so either one of the victims, wherever it came from, <laughs> he's got an MVAC flyer. But if we have that, then what we can do is uh, look at the reference samples from those individuals and sort of, if we get a mixture, then we can, you know, it's easier to, to back out those particular people who have um, uh, donated their DNA to the sample when we have another improvement, which is probabilistic genotyping. So that's something that helps us kind of untangle those mixtures. So seven or eight years ago, I don't, I mean, there might've been a lab in the country that was using it. The army crime lab was using it. Maybe, I don't even know if it was seven or eight years ago. So that's something that I definitely don't think that would have been used um, in the past, uh, even if it was fairly recently. And and the Paul Stein cab that was probably yeah. the most rich with potential evidence. There were a set of there was a pair of men's gloves found, which I've heard different stories of the person. It was a it was belonged to a person that was in the cab earlier, and they found them. I've heard that they didn't identify them, right. but you're think I'm thinking mm-hmm. that a, a set of gloves is going to have some potentially 
good DNA in them. And then you also have um, the shirt that he handled, Paul Stein's shirt, when he mailed it back in, he, he handled it. So, I mean, there's a yeah. few different things there that seems like there might be possibility of DNA. Right. The, and uh, I would say the shirt, but go ahead. Go ahead, Drew. They used to store the shirt in a paper bag. I remember seeing that in, in I I've think the that. documentary was in the 80s. Um, paper regarding bags the... fine. Nothing wrong with yeah, paper yeah, bags. That's what we prefer. Okay. <laughs> we like paper Better bags. Than <laughs> That's good. Okay. Yeah. 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 Regarding the, uh, the gloves that were found in the front seat, um, I wish I had a better source on this, but apparently it was the History Channel, which did a terrible documentary a few years ago. Um, they said they found two uh, male DNA profiles, neither of which were Stein's, and that was from inside the gloves. Yeah. But the question was, were those gloves left I by mean, the killer or left by a, a rider in the cab earlier? Right. That indeed is the question, Mike. I have exactly. no idea. What about, I would right. imagine... And I have concerns about anything from that cab because it's a public... I mean, public transportation, basically. You know, I mean, it's who a knows starting, how It's a starting point, DNA. though. It's a Petri dish of DNA. At one, at yeah, one point, in, in one sense, it is mind-blowing that uh, Zodiac uh, didn't wear gloves uh, for the Stein killing when it seems like he wore them for the Lake Berryessa one. But we just can't believe that he was wearing that he was wearing gloves for the whole time and then took them off, left them to taunt the police, and then spent very, very valuable time wiping down the cab inside and out. You know. You know, the the thinking though, maybe he the plan goes awry, he's nervous, he's trying to get in and out, and that plan of okay, I'm gonna be nice and careful, he forgets and he leans up against that cab. Oh, absolutely. There's blood on his hand. <laughs> yeah. And, and, you know, how many times as criminals, they try and plan the perfect thing. And then all of a sudden there's one little thing they, in the rush of it, they, they screw up on. Yeah. And so it was I have a latent question. print in, in blood? Yeah. On the, on the cab. Oh, and also, okay. um, and also what's the other place, Drew? There's another place where there's a. There was uh, several, several door. places. Part knows corridor yeah, where he wrote. They have the entire door in evidence. So um, if they could yeah. get something okay. off him leaning on the door while he was writing. Mm -hmm. And then I feel like we're not talking about the adhesive on the envelopes of any of the communications and behind the stamps. I yeah. think that would be mm -hmm. a DNA rich source. Unless he did, looked. you know, used a sponge or if it was something like that. They've certainly looked and the data that we have is uh, frustrating to say the least. Um, the man who was uh, heading the lab in the late 90s, a man by the name of Alan Keel, <laughs> uh, tested, whether he tested all of, all of the items in his possession at that time, I'm not <laughs> sure. He didn't have the initial three letters to work with at the time. They, they had been displaced. They got them back a few years later. Uh, but either he or someone after he got fired uh, prepared a uh, checklist of what they had tested and what they had found. And this is a very frustrating checklist. It does not, to my, to my eyes, look like it was uh, prepared by someone who knew what they were talking about with DNA. Uh, there was very little information on it. Uh, it seemed contradictory. Sometimes they'd say few cells found 
sometimes it would say cells found and then on the uh the one for uh in 1978 uh it said sample obtained is the only one on the list that said sample obtained and then it said not authentic zodiac material now scientifically they couldn't have known that well uh, they could if this was contamination and they matched it up to someone else in the lab that's how they would know that that would be helpful information uh the other theory is that at the time they were uh they had accused should i say that uh toski uh inspector toski uh had been accused of writing that letter and mm -hmm. you know they they did hand uh handwriting uh analysis uh presumably they did uh fingerprint analysis and they they never said that he uh, confessed or that any of their uh any part of uh the data matched and they did publicly say that he was cleared but still the theory uh persists that uh they knew it was toski all along mm. so who knows i got some samples done i gotta go <laughs> but, <laughs> uh, that's uh, what that beeping is it's telling me fair, fair enough suzanne Susanna's yeah, making me insecure when I hear that sound. My pizza pops are ready. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no. um, yeah, you know, I don't know. The, the, I would love to see if they actually have any results. And when that testing was done, did they save any of the sample? Um, you know, I mean, we talk about it all the time, that the sensitivity is just a lot better. And And this looking for cells, we don't look for cells anymore. We just swab and go or MVAC because we know that the DNA is not just in the cells. Like they're looking for nucleated epithelial cells. And mm -hmm. so yes, there's DNA there, but there's also DNA that's the cell-free DNA that we can't see. If you, you know, if I looked under a microscope slide, I'm, I'm not going to see it, you know, just like with latent prints. If we, if we had someone press their fingers on a microscope slide and we looked at it under the microscope, we might see some you know, cell fragments, some debris. Uh, we may, may see a single nucleated epithelial cell. We may not, but we're probably still going to get a DNA profile, yeah. whether we see the cells or not. So that doesn't mean anything, basically. Interesting. Um, could, yeah. Drew, could you bring up that uh, that graphic of that DNA report to show Susanna and okay, great, uh, yeah. see what her opinion is? Can you reach it easily enough? Uh, it'll take a few minutes. I think that would be interesting Talk to have amongst Susanna yourselves. break that <laughs> yeah. down. Talk amongst yeah, yourselves. I, I didn't get to look at it. So yeah, um, I, I I would love for for you to just sit down with the investigators in the Zodiac case and say, okay, I'm at your disposal. What evidence do you have for me to go mm -hmm. through? I do, I hope they're doing that behind the scenes. Mm -hmm. I'm kind of nervous that they're not, and I'm worried mm -hmm. about that. I I think they should be yeah. trying to pull out every stop that they can, but. San Francisco pretty much controls the case and mm -hmm. we see what's going on in San Francisco. They're inundated with crime. The budget is, is not being allocated towards, you know, I think 50 year old cold cases are not on the front burner. I think they're on the back burner and they're trying to get a, a handle on things that are going on now, but I'd love for someone like you to sit down and say, mm -hmm this is what we can do now in 2023 with the latest technology. What have you done mm -hmm. so far? What can we do differently? And I'd love to see someone 
do that with the powers that be in the Zodiac case. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I'd be happy to, but, uh, you know, and I would say, and I don't think I really got to talk about this too much or did, or brought it up maybe in the scrum. When we talked about the Sherry Jo Bates case, I would say, you know, in case anyone is wondering or is thinking, you know, is anybody doing anything about this case? Does anybody care? Riverside, you know, PD, what are they doing? Uh, Riverside is working on this case. You know, I mean, they are um, actively working on the case. So it's not a case that, Sherry Joe Bates case, it's not something that's been forgotten. And so, you know, I just, I did want to let the listeners know that, that that is something that is being worked. So, um, you know, in case anybody was wondering about all these things that we talked about, you know, I mean, I, I think that they, I definitely get the impression that they want to solve it as, as much as anyone does. Yeah. I think some of these agencies have to take people like yourself up on offers you know, you know, maybe we've talked before in certain episodes where they won't accept fundraising money um, from people, yeah. but maybe they'll accept your services. Um, mm-hmm. You know, you're a professional, you can sign a non-disclosure, whatever, um, sure. and and do it behind the scenes. They should be taking up uh, your, your offers to help and, and people like yourself when they need it, if it can help solve cases that they don't have the money for. Right. Right. No, I agree. And kind of run into all types of agencies, all types of detectives in those particular agencies where some are a lot more open and, and, or are proactively reaching out to other, you know, experts or or to laboratories or whomever for assistance. And then, you know, some are definitely more closed off. So it's just hit or miss. Yeah. Now how, go ahead more. I was just going to say, I, I'm curious because we're talking about a case that's 50 years old, basically. Um, how often, obviously, they didn't know about DNA to store it properly and preserve it and everything. You know, that's can't put the cart before the horse. But how often do cases that are that old, do you find anything that you can work with in those types of cases? I mean, is this a lost cause, do you think, based on the way the stuff was stored back then? Or do you think there's a real possibility of finding something that might solve the case with DNA? Yeah, I mean, I definitely think it's still a possibility. It really does come down to storage conditions. Um, but yeah, I mean, we've worked on cases older than older than this and gotten beautiful profiles, gotten CODIS eligible profiles. So it certainly yeah. is possible. It doesn't mean, oh, it's 50 years old, forget it. Uh, it It's okay. We understand the medicine degradation. We understand, you know, we have to be concerned about contamination. Uh-oh, I'm disappearing. There we go. But um, but otherwise, it is possible. It certainly is possible. So um, it looks like Drew maybe has the report ready to go. Okay. Uh, this is the first page of it. Mm-hmm. Okay. Oops, that doesn't work. Okay. Uh, so it's it's not easy to read. Uh, but this is a list of the the correspondences, date when they were okay. sent. Okay. And yeah, basically they all say envelope process for D- mm-hmm. DNA. Few cells, few cells. But that doesn't tell me if they actually took that forward. Maybe they said, okay, I'm going to extract it. It only has a few cells. We know that we need, you know, I mean, at that time, I'm not even sure. I guess I don't know what year this was, but. um, About 98, probably. 98. 
Okay, so they're probably doing profiler plus, which is nine loci. If we're lucky, they might have just been they might have been doing something called HLA DQ alpha, which was this polymarker test where it was not nearly as specific, but it did involve the polymerase chain reaction. So we were copying the DNA. Um, but if you only had a few, if you know, if they're thinking, oh, we only have a few cells, they might not have gone forward. So when they say process for DNA, they might have extracted the sample, looked at a portion of it under the microscope, said, mm, there's only a couple of cells, we're not going to go forward. I'm not sure. Um, right. So you see the bottom one. That's the 1978 letter, which may be, okay. may be authentic, but uh, they certainly weren't. Uh, initially, they uh -huh. were convinced it was authentic and uh, verified the handwriting. And then uh, it was thought that perhaps Toski wrote it instead. Okay. And it says DNA okay. sample can obtained, not authentic yeah. Zodiac letter. Yeah. No yeah. explanation for why. Huh. Gotcha. Okay. So that's a little different. Yeah. What I was interpreting it as was, okay, a DNA profile was obtained, but this is not that they were implying. Maybe, that maybe that the person, could the person writing the report have just labeled that incorrectly and it's supposed to say DNA profile obtained? Yeah. I mean, and it could be a DNA profile, but I, the way I'm reading this now is basically they're saying, okay, maybe we have results, but it doesn't matter because we've determined that this is not an authentic Zodiac letter. So it's, you know, a red herring. It's, we're not going to, we're not going to pursue these results or try to determine who it is that, that, you know, I'm, I'm not sure, but looking at it, that seems like what the, what they're trying to say. Andrew, wasn't there possibly blood on that, uh, that, that Donald I asked communication? Wasn't the thing uh, no. signed with? Was it? Did it turn out to be paint? I, I think it was some, paper, actually. I thought there was a possibility there was some blood. I think on. it was. I think Avery suggested that it was blood, but um, I don't think it was. Uh, I don't have any official thing on there. It it was looked at. It is mentioned on here. I think it's the three hole punch one. Uh, postcard sought victim 12 peek through the pines cut out yeah. letters and it just says it doesn't say anything about processing pasted yes. letters yeah it, it looks like some stuff redacted too those white weighted out parts so it's either redacted it's or it's a work in progress like they're list they're listing the uh the items that they have to test but haven't necessarily mm -hmm. gotten there yet. And that yeah. somewhat makes sense with our timeline with, uh, with Keel, who I guess he wasn't fired. He left, but he had, he was under accusation of uh, falsifying evidence. And, uh, and he was, he's he still in the left. field, by the way. I mean, he, he's a, he's worked for a private lab for, uh, for a number of years and he's a consultant in California. Hmm. what about the correspondence that they're pretty sure is not the zodiac like did they take dna profiles so they can say hey we have four different profiles here to definitively rule it out or they don't uh, we don't we don't really know we don't know i mean we know that according to that uh 
that chart that they got a sample. Um, but I have never, I have never heard anything conclusive that says that they got a full DNA profile from it. No, but those are the ones that they suspect to be the Zodiac, correct? I'm, I'm talking about the ones that, that they don't. Hoax. Okay, that they don't think are the Zodiac, right? They're all worth testing, as far as I'm concerned. I think so too. Uh, yeah. I mean, some of these letters that may very well not be Zodiac certainly seem like they're from the same author. So if it's not Zodiac, then it could be the same person. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and I know Tom Voigt thinks that a, a certain woman whose name I won't mention uh, wrote at least two of them. Hmm. Well, there's a um, there's also several letters that are not released publicly. Um, I mean, we mentioned the Oakland A's tickets. We mentioned um, there. You could see it on on that chart there. One of them mentioned Monticello. Um, I, I think that's one is that that April in the woods dies April letter. Um, yes, and that's yeah, from that, 71. Yeah, so there are that. there are multiple things that are not released publicly, and then this seems to only talk about correspondences. Again, we don't have a report like this talking about what if they've tested the bindings, if they've tested gloves, if they tested anything that they found, hairs. Um, we know that Arthur Lee Allen, the most popular Zodiac suspect, he, did his DNA did not match the hair that they found, which is questionable to begin with because it was on the um, outside of a envelope. Um, so that could have come from anybody anywhere along the, the way in the postal system. Um, but that hair, that DNA did not match Arthur Leon's. Um, so I, I, I just love them to do something fresh with new eyes, forget everything they did 10, 20 years ago. Just look at it with fresh eyes, with new technology and, and the latest, uh, advancements. Yeah. Well, back, back then. Yeah. Uh, I and, agree. and it's, it's possible that there's extracts remaining present or whatever they might not have gone forward with the testing but they might have kept the dna extract the liquid you know extracted dna and so there could be potential to you know let's say they consumed everything underneath those stamps or the adhesives they might still have the actual sample to work with so that would be something to look into as well so my understanding of their process at that time was that they would take a small they would cut a small square out of a stamp like very small and they would put the entire thing in the solution mm -hmm. and um maybe you can extrapolate where i'm going with this it's not the greatest mm -hmm. method yeah i mean no right if that's what they were doing then that would be uh, a potential problem because then you're picking up whatever's on the exterior of the stamp so anytime that i've had stamps i you know if they're adhesive ones and you can kind of work at them and, and peel them off. But if they're the older ones with the, with the, or I mean, self-adhesive versus the older ones where they're yeah. licked or wetted, then, you know, I'd get a beaker of water and steam it off, you know, like pull it off and then just swab the underneath of the stamp. Right. Um, so what they're getting so. is, is information from below the stamp, which the sender mm -hmm. obviously contributed, but also above the stamp, which, anyone in the mailroom could have contributed. Yeah. 
and they're hoping exactly. that the underneath data will overwhelm the overtop data. That's not yeah, the least. appropriate way to sample. No. There, there was some discussion too, and this is all hearsay and, and no, nothing confirmed that I've seen in black and white, but do you remember the discussion, Drew, that the Halloween card he sent to Avery had a used condom in it? I, yeah. that, I, I don't I mean that, that, that would seem like it would be rich. I don't I don't believe that. I don't know that it's true. <laughs> I've never seen that yet. documented, <laughs> but that's that was one of the things that was uh out there as uh something that was never verified. Um I've never seen any reports. I've seen different reports that nothing like yeah. that. I believe that I believe that Tom was told something like that. I think the quote Tom gave was something gross. I don't think he ever specified a condom. I think that's just where <laughs> maybe the that's what researchers uh, imagined. I just see a gift. <laughs> well, that would seem like a rich, uh, you know, at the time he would have had no knowledge of DNA. So if he, if he did say right. something like that, that could be a they only do ABO. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. No, and then that would remain for a long time. Like that, that's not going to break down. So that would be definitely be a good source of DNA. But yeah. okay, any last DNA questions before I leave? Yes, Chloe, did you have a? I, 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 I do. I do have one. I do have <laughs> one. Bye. I do have one quick question. Uh, it's about genealogy. So once you've got the okay. DNA, you've got a full prof profile. Can you talk a little bit about? you know, uh, just an abbreviated version of how long it would take, how much it would cost to do the genealogy rep, because it seems like that's what could ultimately identify this person. Um, I, I mean, that's a little outside my realm. I don't do genealogy. I've had cases that I've done testing and then those extracts have been sent to laboratories to do the SNP testing, which is what's used for genealogy. And so I think it really varies in terms of timing and cost, but most, the majority, if not, I'd say the vast majority of labs that are doing genealogy are private labs. So you're gonna have a quicker turn, turnaround time in general. Um, I've heard prices ranging from $5,000 a sample to uh, my, my friend is working, she's now working in a genealogy laboratory and or not laboratory but just doing the just doing the comparison stuff and uh their uh i can't remember investigative genealogy it's like two thousand dollars for them but that's much less expensive than other places i've heard um and then so the, the testing is one aspect right getting the getting the actual snip profile is is one step in the process but once you have that profile you know so that's going to be a separate cost and uh, timetable to get that done once you have that profile then that's where the genealogists come in so that they're not necessarily laboratory people they're genealogists they're they specialize in taking that dna data and uploading it to the publicly available databases and then you know sifting through all of that information and so that is going to be completely dependent on how close the match is in the database number one is there a match so a, a cousin second cousin fourth cousin, you know whatever it is and how close they are how much dna do they share with your unknown profile and the more dna 
DNA that is being shared, the closer the relative is, and potentially the easier it is to, you know, kind of build out that tree. Um, so that's going to be completely dependent upon the database. We do know that, you know, uh, Caucasian individuals are making up the majority of the database. So you have a better chance of getting a match if your suspect um, is, is uh, Caucasian. Um, you know, it's going to depend on the skill of the genealogist as well. Right now, it's pretty much the wild, wild west out there. There's no, you know, th th there's no standards, really. There's no... Um, training there's no accreditation or i don't want to say training like i'm, I'm wow. saying you know people can be trained and are trained in it but there's no standardization about how it's being done it, that's going to be coming about and no you know? accreditation no not the labs that are yeah. doing the snip testing aren't even accredited there's no it's wow. so new there's not even a document to for, for the labs to follow to say look we're following these guidelines you know they just don't really exist right now. That will be coming. I mean, it is kind of okay. in process, but, you know, I always warn my detectives or investigators, listen, just, you know, make, make sure you do some research on the person that's doing your genealogy that they're, they know what they're doing, basically. Although the, you know, well, the evidence isn't the genealogy. It's the evidence is when you do the buckle swab with the guy they appoint you to, and it matches the evidence, the DNA you have in on DNA. Right. That's the, the rest of it. It's just a lead. Genealogy is right. just a lead pointing you in a direction. So it's nothing that they're, they're tying individuals to on the, uh, they're not saying, oh, this is the guy because genealogy says it is. No, that's right. not what works. They have to get a verifiable, a verifiable buckle swab from the person they're looking at right. and either does or does not match the evidence you have. Right. So it'll it either clear them or not. And that's really the only evidence, and that's all, of course, has standards. But the geology is just—it's just—it's no different than if 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 you put out. I'm looking for a guy who drives a blue Chevy Nova, and I call you and say, "Hey, my neighbor has a blue Chevy Nova," and you go test him. Okay, that's him, or it's not him. That's no difference, really. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it all starts with the DNA, so hopefully, it does. Hopefully, there is some to be worked on, and hopefully, someone like yourself can can reach out yeah. to them and say, hey, uh, I'd like to help you oh, whittle great. down what you've got or what you don't have with DNA. Yeah, yeah. Hope, I would I would assume it's such a high profile case that they are, the investigators are doing that. You would think but... so, right? <laughs> yeah. I would hope. Hope. Yeah. 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 Thank you so much for making the time for us, even yeah. though you're yeah. really yeah. at work right now. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Yep, no problem. All right, back to work. Okay. Right. <laughs> Take care. Bye. I'll be listening now. So, all right. Thanks, guys. Bye bye. Take care. If you're listening to this episode of Citizen Detective, we know you'll want to hear what happened in the Scrum, the Citizen Detective After Show, in which we continue discussing this case with our guests. You'll be interested to hear what didn't make it into the regular episode. Here's a preview. From the shaft of a hair. You can get a cellular DNA from the shaft of a hair now. You he wouldn't really have the balls to confront you directly, although he'd get little jabs in, you'd see him smirking at you. Um, you wouldn't like him, he, you know, just passive aggressive. Like very much. Then maybe he foregoes the safety from harm and safety from blood spatter yeah. that sitting in the back seat would have allowed him. To listen to full episodes of The Scrum and get ad-free episodes of Citizen Detective as well as other benefits, you need to become a Patreon supporter of the show. Visit patreon.com slash citizen detective right now to become part of our digital detective agency.
Lee, Lee, Lee has something. Ooh, ooh, ooh. No, it's ooh. saying bye, like a. Oh, know. bye. <laughs> Doug has different. to leave. Doug yeah, has I was about to say like four things, and then like like a differently abled person. <laughs> <laughs> thanks a lot, guys. Appreciate. Thanks, uh, yeah, thanks for coming Thank on, you, Doug. Doug. All right, thanks we'll see you next time. The information. Yeah. So, I guess it's just going to be the five of us heading into the scrum. Or? Let's let's do like th- are there any more comments we want to get to, Drew. I was thinking we could do a couple more and throw Ashley on, and then we'll go to the scrum. Does that work? Yeah. Sure. Rebecca Casella says, I've always thought there was more to the Stein killing than he admitted to. More um, behaviorally, motivationally, psychology. Like, did he know Paul Stein? Yeah, Is that's that what I was going to say. Did he know him? Mm-hmm. Is he a target? That's what, you know, a lot, a lot of people try to say, oh, he knew him and he had a beef with him. There's been discussion of whether he actually drove in the front seat with him right. versus the back seat and whether... Stein would only let someone he knew or trusted drive in the front seat with him. Uh, a, a lot of different stuff like that. But then again, I, I think at the end of the day, is if he's driving with someone he knows, is he going to log him into a, a location that he's going to at Washington Maple, or is he just going to give him a ride for free? Yeah. Um, I, I think that sort of cast doubt on the fact that he would know him. We can't know anything about this damn case. Uh, nothing's impossible. Yeah, it's. Uh, we know that no one called into the station to request. Uh, Paul Stein. Yeah, send uh, Paul. Specifically, I want him to drive me. I don't. I don't believe he was even scheduled to work that day. Incidentally, um, and and it would really just sort of defeat the entire purpose. I would think of of targeting a cab driver. Um. You know, the he could he could he could kill any any cab driver that uh, that pulled up for him to do that with someone that he knew, you know, and that he could be traced to. I yeah. mean, maybe maybe I don't understand Zodiac at all, but that's that sounds bizarre. Um, there there are some interesting circumstantial links to uh, to certain uh, suspects, but. Uh, but I, I, I would bet the uh, the farm that he didn't know him. I'm in the, I'm in the same camp. Although I, I still wonder, is it a possibility that he picked that original Washington and Maple address up because he wanted to shock someone that lived on that intersection, maybe? A boss, someone he okay, didn't like, somebody he be... had a beef with? Yeah. There was a, apparently there was a school uh, at... Um, uh, Washington and Maple. Um, now, of course, he did it a block further on Cherry, but if his original destination was uh, was indeed Maple, uh, perhaps that's a reason. But tied to that school somehow, maybe. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. Rebecca, Rebecca. Casella, you want? Go ahead. Go ahead. Sure. Okay, Rebecca is also. Um asking did he understand that different police departments didn't necessarily talk to each other would partially explain his moving from area to area i countermeasure i certainly yeah. believe he did yeah but when he when he writes letters and points out that it's the same guy that kind of defeats that purpose right yeah you're looking the cases yourself yeah, yeah. that's maybe the I main mean, contradiction of of the zodiac is uh in 
in one instance, he's uh, in one sense, he's he's doing everything he can to link himself to the crimes. He's right. calling, he's sending letters, he's providing right. details, he provides a follow-up letter. <laughs> but all, all he needed to do was use the same weapon for all the crimes, and he doesn't do that. Although, right. although I, that wouldn't necessarily have tied him together across jurisdictional lines either. You know, they would not yeah. necessarily know. Yeah. The movie Zodiac does a really good job of showing the the lack of a cohesive team effort from the different jurisdictions working together, mm -hmm. how no, they didn't really, they, they had egos. They didn't really, all, they didn't really want to share information necessarily. It was sort of a competition. Um, so I think and that, we've seen that probably, so many cases. Yeah. That was a much more of a problem back then than it is now, but yeah, yeah. I think they know now that it's important to work together and oh, share absolutely, it. absolutely. Put it all in a database and share it as much as possible. Yeah, they actually started working together pretty pretty quickly, though, wasn't it? In uh, October '69, they uh, all of the jurisdictions got together. Uh, even yeah. Riverside uh, right. got in on that. Yeah, once he's pointing out himself that he's the same guy, that you're probably better. Yeah, yeah. The best thing they did was start a task force to sort of tag team everything um, right. and pool information. But then over the years, the DOJ took over, the um, California Department of Justice took over the case, and they sort of took everything um, into evidence. And then they gave up the case not too long ago, I don't think. And then it went back to the individual departments. And then now um, Napa, for example, is not really doing much with the case. They're letting San Francisco do their portion. Yeah. Um, it's just been bounced around like a like a, a shit sandwich that no one wants. <laughs> just sort of, uh, yeah. um, they just pass it back and forth. And the evidence, I've heard of evidence getting lost. Last time I checked, I ch checked with someone I knew that couldn't track down where the, the desktop in the Sherry Joe Bates case was last at um that was lost at the time um so well, like i said in the 90s when they were testing the dna they didn't have the first letters yeah. you know right. they've been misplaced i, I hate the old misplaced <laughs> yeah yeah i could see that you could see that being a, a case where hey i got this the, he sent like 30 of them i'm just gonna keep one for a souvenir yeah. you know what i mean <laughs> they got 29 other ones what's the harm of me yeah, keeping right. this one in my scrapbook at home we have another really good uh, comment here though I'd like to get to yeah. last one then Ashley then the scrum a sure. Facebook user since there appears to be no solid biological evidence in the Zodiac series what is considered to be the best evidence to work from the letters for forensic linguistics or the possible Zodiac prints on the cab well if it's, it's between those two I would say the prints because that's Different. much Art yeah. Forensic, forensic linguistics isn't linguistics is not really science. You can't convince yeah. someone on that. It's not not right. physical evidence. Yeah, it's somebody's yeah. opinion. Yeah, you're yeah. exactly right. The prince of the prince. Yeah, that's a great question though. It is. Yeah, yeah. and the yeah. prince in blood and the the there was literally seconds after he left the scene that the police arrived. So you have to assume that nobody else got there in between and accidentally left that bloody print you have to assume that's from him you also have the yeah. kids that are called that called the police to begin with that are watching the cab they say nobody else came you know yeah, yeah. they yeah. actually walked out to the cab according to the 
Officer Palisetti and got almost to the cab when he stopped them and told them to go back in the house. Right. So we have to assume that print is his and that print has ruled out like 3,000 suspects or something like that. Right. Yeah. Um, Fake so that's, that's, that's their, I mean, unless he sliced off somebody's finger and was carrying it around to leave yeah. fingerprints. <laughs> but I mean, he, he got, when that sketch came out, he said, oh, I only look like that when I do my what thing, of course he's going to say, what is he going to say? You know what I look like? Oh, no, that's me. Gonna... That's yeah. me. And then he said, oh, I, I left my head, those fake prints left with airplane glue. And they, you yeah. Know, no. He slipped up and now you want them to think that they don't have what they have. Yeah. I think at the end of the day, that print is his. Um, and I think he looked exactly like he looked in the sketch that they passed out. Sure. And then he stopped killing. And then he stopped killing right away because now he was on the verge mm-hmm. of getting caught. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, as I might have said in the pre the previous episode, if not, I certainly said it on my podcast. I don't see Zodiac as being addicted to killing like some of these people that have like a stronger sexual element. Yeah. You, know, you see, like a Bundy or a Gacy, they literally can't stop. And I, Zodiac, I don't see him as a psychopath. I think he's more of a narcissist, and I don't think there's like a paraphilic element to his crime. So that's me in disagreement with John Douglas, by the way. But yeah, I, well, I what a shock! Well, you know, I believe everything John Douglas, <laughs> especially, especially because <laughs> the letter, the letter started. writing and the notoriety sort of overtook the actual killing. So I think, if you know, to yeah. your point, mm-hmm. it's, it's probably that became the most important point to him that he didn't need to do the killing. Right. Yeah, and the people who've wrote those letters before, I think they they show more narcissism than psychopathy. Like uh, if you think of someone like Berkowitz or or BTK, they're not like extreme psychopaths they're right you know uh and and he's he's not a psychopath because he's nervous all the time yeah like he's, he he's scared that's a big clue yeah. when he was shooting yeah. those people that's a big clue maybe he freaked him out and he stopped mm. for that reason or maybe um he just maybe he died maybe he was left the area who knows yeah, he, he was mm-hmm. a beefy fellow for sure yeah yeah maybe maybe he ate too much at mr ed's yeah <laughs> <laughs> So it was last drive through, uh, but um, yeah, and and there's no you won't look at the crime and and say that's a, a sexual um, like it could be motivated by anger over feeling sexually excluded, but mm-hmm. it's not a, the enactment. It's not getting him off. I don't think. I don't see any evidence of that at all. It's no. not. Uh, yeah. So he's exactly the kind of person who could just stop. He could. Yeah. Exactly. Well, according to certain people, and I won't mention the FBI's name, they can't stop. They're compelled forever. And if they stop, it's because they're either dead or in prison. Like, that didn't happen with Gerda Ridgway. It didn't happen with BTK. (laughs) Mm -hmm. They couldn't be wrong because they're the FBI. (laughs) Don't get me started. (laughs) Yeah, we know. (laughs) I, I accept everyone. Yeah. So should we, uh, we go to the scrum now? Yeah. Let's get Ashley up here first. Okay. Do the Patreon thing. Hello, everybody. Um, I wasn't here last time, so I would like to thank the last show's new patrons who are Kim, Ken M, Charles M, and Sunny A. Thanks also to this week's new patrons, Mark B, Paul T, and No Friender. If you're considering adding Citizen Detective to your Patreon feed, here's the deal. 
The Nancy Drew tier gives you ad-free episodes, bonus content, and the Scrum. Scrum is an after-hours with our hosts and guests where the conversation continues. The Columbo tier contains the perks of the first, plus a guarantee that at least one of your comments or voicemails will be heard on the show. The Poirot tier contains the perks of the first and second, plus access to a quarterly private session where members will join and interact with one or more hosts to discuss cases not explored on the show. Think of it as a masterclass where you and the host dig even deeper into your pet case. The fourth and final is Sherlock Holmes, which contains all perks so far, plus a VIP pass to any special in-person event where you can meet and hang with the hosts of Citizen Detective. As we grow, there will be a lot more coming your way. Watch this space. Remember that your help keeps the Citizen Detective ship afloat. Head on over to www.patreon.com slash Citizen Detective. Citizen Detective streams every two weeks on YouTube, at Citizen Pod on Twitter, at Citizen Detective Podcast on Facebook, and twitch.tv slash Citizen Detective. I hope everyone had a lovely Easter. Now back to the show. Thank you, Ashley. So, should we uh, sign off and head on over to the the after hours party? Scrum, 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 scrum. scrum. Okie dokie. The Citizen Detective team includes co-hosts Mike Morford, Alex Ralph, and Dr. Lee Meller, who also provides case analysis. The team also includes forensic DNA analyst Susanna Ryan and retired Seattle homicide detective Cloyd Steiger. Writing and research, Alex Ralph. Technical producer, Andrew Gray. Production assistant, Ashley Monroe. Be sure to catch new episodes of Citizen Detective every other Saturday. To contact the show anytime, visit citizendetectivepodcast.com and follow along on social media.